it's right. They realize if you don't speak the language, you don't have a, a shared culture, then there's something that all of a sudden makes it less like a nation and more like a colony or more like a temporary place for corporations to make money. Let's talk about the minimum wage. Sure. The reason why I don't want abrupt, quick, let's say increases. In- I didn't I didn't really make any points or refute what you said, but I do want to interject with just a little bit of some like light replacement theory here. Today, we have he of the large cranium and Ben Burgess facing off in the octagon. It's debate night fight thing. Uh, I spoke to Ben Burgess both before he went on uh, the show to do this and then afterwards just to get his opinion on how he thought it went and everything. And he said his tactic, and I think we'll see it uh, employed here, was less than... Uh, get nonstop dunks on Charlie Kirk, like we saw with Charlie Kirk's uh, abortion debate uh, with the comedian, and more to be able to make a lot of these ideas that Charlie Kirk always rallies against, such as, you know, uh, or just preposterous uh, things like uh, Biden is a neo-Marxist, blah, 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 um, to, to be able to make his audience suddenly realize that that's all malarkey. So we'll see. We'll see how this went down. Welcome to Debate Night, everybody. My name is Charlie. Yeah, it's, a, it's the dolphin guy. That's right. It's the dolphin guy. Kirk. Tonight's guest is a self-proclaimed democratic socialist, a philosophy professor at Georgia State University, Perimeter College, and an adjunct professor at Rutgers University. He's a columnist for the Jacobin Magazine and has written four books, including his most recent, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. In addition to all of that, he hosts the podcast, Give Them an Argument, which you can find on his Patreon, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Please join me in welcoming Professor Ben Burgess to debate. Hey, everybody, welcome to this episode of Debate Night. With us tonight is Ben, or Dr. Burgess, or Ben Burgess, however you want to say it. We're going to be debating, and we'll see where it leads us, uh, Democrat socialism versus conservative populism. Super thrilled uh, that Ben is here tonight to have this discussion. It'll start with some opening statements, and then we'll take it from there. The two minutes is yours, Dr. Uh-huh. Burgess. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Mr. Kirk, and uh, thank you to Town Circle for setting this up. So I'm a democratic socialist because I don't think anybody deserves to have less power or dramatically worse life because of factors that are outside of their control. So that's the first part. That's the philosophical basis. Concretely, I think it's obscene that we have an economic system where workers at Amazon warehouses skip bathroom breaks because they're worried about falling behind in their quotas and their boss literally owns his own spaceship. Now, <laughs> he's already confused. <laughs> what the fuck is he talking about? What, he's like, I'm with the poo bags? Who doesn't have a poo bag? Ben, I've got one right now. Come on. There's no, no problem with it. We can argue about what a fairer society would look like. I can contrast what I would see as utopia with what you would, and I'm always up for that kind of thing. I'm sure we'll get into some of it later. But what I really like to start out with is not so much that endpoint as the baby steps towards justice that we could take right now. Things like raising taxes on rich people to pay for social programs that would benefit the rest of us. Things like raising the minimum wage for the working poor. Things like making it easier for ordinary people to organize unions so they can have at least a little bit of a say at what happens in the workplaces where they spend half their waking lives. And I gotta say, what always confuses me about you, Charlie, is that I see you say that you're not like an old style kind of corporate Republican in the Reagan, Bush, William F. Buckley kind of mold. And certainly the politicians you seem to be most enthusiastic about, people like Donald Trump or J.D. Vance now, make a big deal saying they're, they're populist, they really wanna help like struggling people in the heartland. And if that's true, I don't really get why you don't support any of those things that I just mentioned. Well, very good. It's almost exactly two minutes. So uh, 
I'll, I'll respond. First of all, thank you for being here. And if we want to spend an extended period of time bashing Jeff Bezos, I'm all for that. I think it's actually going to be really fun. Um, so let me just first kind of tell you what I believe and why we believe it. It's kind of framed as conservative populism. Put simply, we believe in the natural law. We believe, as the Declaration of Independence says, the laws of nature and nature's God. We believe in limitations on human beings, and we should believe there are limitations on power. A good retort to that, Ben, would have been like, well, how about instead of Jeff Bezos, if you want to pick a rich person, how about we do the Koch brother, and then we talk about his various think tanks, like the Heritage Foundation, or the one that sponsors the show and Turning Point USA. Let's, let's, let's do that. Power, both government power and, yes, of course, cor corporate power, as Barry Goldwater said in the 1960s. We also believe America is strongest when families are flourishing, when there's a strong moral center, when middle-class work is respected and appreciated. And the populist component to this is we need to be aware of what's happening around us, see when core institutions are failing, like the family, which has been failing over the last 60 years in America, which can be attributed to many different things. I would attribute it to the rise of an aggressive social welfare state and an overindulgence in neoliberalism, that we must be willing to do something about it when the family starts to disintegrate, when our nation starts to fall apart, when our borders remain wide open. And so we pair those two things together, conservative populism and the kind of philo philosophical so basis for a lot of fascism. this is the willingness <laughs> to act with prudence and wisdom to try and fix things that matter, things that objectively matter. And I've been really looking forward to this discussion. I think, I hope it's more of a discussion than a debate because we will disagree on plenty. But when you talk about a untouchable oligarchy, I completely agree. I think that there is an untouchable oligarchy in this country, both corporate and governmental, scientific and technological, that is crushing the everyday common man. Where I think we're going to disagree is that I think the end goal, the thing that we must strive to, is family formation, family protection, and that strong moral center. And conservative populism is a resurgence of focusing on these things and developing solutions to hope fix, hopefully fix it. All right. Well, I guess what I would say is when you talk about limited power, Right. I get that. That makes sense to me. I think that absolutely, uh, you know, I think oftentimes actually people get the relationship between these things really wrong and they'll think, well, the more you think that human nature is good and cooperative, you know, the more you, know, you might think that a fairer society is possible. And uh, the more you think that human nature is flawed and selfish and cruel, then the more, you know, you should think that, hey, we might as well just stick with free market capitalism. But I think the opposite is true. I think that the more you worry that given too much power over another, you know, one person over another, that person is going to treat the other the way that Walmart treats its employees, the way that Harvey Weinstein treated aspiring actresses. The more you're worried about that, the more you should want power to be distributed as evenly as at all possible. And that's really why I'm a democratic socialist, that I think whether you're talking about Russia under Stalin or Amazon under our mutual friend Jeff Bezos. Not a friend. Uh, then uh, then uh, any time you have one person having way too much power over another without democratic accountability, I think you're going to get really bad abuses. So I think that's helpful. Where I think we'll disagree, though, is the means of which we can represent individual people against oppressors or people that have power. This is why I tend to defend markets. And I want to be very clear. Mm. Markets are a tool, something we set up to hopefully help human beings. There are externalities there are jerks and dirt bags like Jeff Bezos that tend to con the system, not pay tax. That's not why we set up markets. It was like, okay, let's set up markets for the benevolence of helping humanity. Taxes, not treat their workers. And one of the reasons why this has become an emphasis, I think, of conservatives is we're willing to use prudence in a non-dogmatic way and say, wait a second, if we're trying to conserve something that is eternal and beautiful and true, is it a good thing that this kind of, let's just use Bezos again, $200 billion of net worth while the average American family is struggling to pay off student loan debt or financial debt? Where I think we're going to explore, I can't do this in the remaining 20 seconds I have, though, is true decentralization must happen in a way that is consistent 
with both reigning in the administrative state and reigning in the technological and corporate power sources in our country. And the ultimate form of decentralization is the family. Strong families, strong households. All right. Uh, So I guess when you talk about the family, sure, absolutely. If people, you know, social institutions are making it harder to keep families together, that's a bad thing. I think that, um, I, you know, I would point to uh, the financial pressures that, you know, that people are often under as a huge source of problems within families, as a huge reason for relationships and marriages uh, failing. And that's something that I think would be helped by doing things like changing labor laws to make it easier to organize unions so people would be getting better wages and have more job stability, less of what employers like to call, you know, flexibility and everybody else calls precarity. And so that might be one place to uh, to start exploring this is, I mean, maybe maybe you'll surprise me here, right? But I do not think we disagree. We agree on that. So, yeah, just, am I good to respond? Yeah, yeah okay, go for good. it. Go no, for I just wanted, didn't no, want no, to no. take any of your time. No, no, please. So I want to get into the union argument. I want to get into the minimum wage argument. I want to get into the healthcare argument. And I'm glad for you to, to say, and I really want to zero in on this, that family formation is a good thing because that is something that is debated amongst some Democrat socialist circles. And once we kind of get into the back and forth, I want to ask you about that because certain activists... Well, okay. I think what he's probably thinking is what constitutes a family certainly they would not agree on right like I, i'm pretty sure ben burgess would very openly say like hey if you happen to have two uh gay dads if you happen to have a family that is just made up of two lesbians then that is completely valid and fine and it turns out statistically that they're uh, just as good at raising children as any other family unit that might be what we disagree on uh, and that's probably where he's thinking this comes from activist organizations tend to disagree some activist organizations will call the family oppressive, patriarchal, where I believe the family is beautiful and the ultimate social bedrock institution. And every single statistic shows that when families are flourishing, divorce rates remain low, which they aren't currently, that crime goes down and literacy goes up and communities flourish. And I think one thing we can agree on, and you said it a little bit differently than I would, I think it's wrong when corporations are making families choose between spending another 10 hours at some soulless job or spending a weekend with your kids. I think the priority should be through our public policy and our laws should always be toward the development of children and families getting stronger. Well, I think that I think that if you want to have a traditional family, absolutely, you should be able to do that. You talked about activist organizations. I think that uh, I would point to like you know the Working Families Party uh, in New York, for example, as a uh, as an activist organization that clearly has no problem with families. Of course. If you want to, if you want to live some other way, that's great. True, I think in a pluralistic society, I think everybody should be able to strive for their vision of the good life, and everybody should be free to live in the way that they want to be free. And I think that this is one of the biggest problems. You know, when we talk about things like healthcare, oftentimes people on my side will emphasize the fact that life expectancy is higher in places like Canada, the UK, where they have socialized healthcare and infant mortality. And you want to talk about families, you know, people's babies are less likely to die in places like Canada, the UK, than in the United States. And mortality amenable to healthcare, which is a stats nerd way of saying that you're less likely to die from treatable diseases, is lower in those places. And I think all those are true and important, but I don't think it's the most important thing because most of us are not on the verge of dying most of the time. Most of us are not worried that our babies are going to die most of the time. The biggest way, I think, that not providing everybody with healthcare as a right affects the lives of most people is that it makes us less free because people are a lot less likely to leave jobs that they hate if they're worried about, will I still have health insurance? Will my family still have health insurance? People stay in those jobs and don't pursue their dreams all the time because of that. There are people, you know, I think people who are in good families and they want to keep them together, absolutely, they should be able to do that. But there are also people who stay in bad or even abusive marriages because they cannot afford to lose their spousal health insurance. 
And so I think that I think that we get we're not only happier and we not only live longer, but I think we're also freer if we take care of those things. So that, that's an interesting point. And what you're articulating as before we get into the back and forth here yeah. um, is what Lyndon Bates Johnson would call freedom from necessity, mm-hmm. which is something I take exception with. I, I do not believe the state should play an interventionist role in saying that it is the role of government to say that you should be free from wants or necessity. I would argue that through a national natural rights compact that you should be free to pursue virtue. And that's not to say you shouldn't have a social safety net, which far too often becomes a hammock at a social Good safety net. Virtue. But I think that the government is really what we're debating mm-hmm. here, right? What is the what is the role of public policy? You have cancer? That's okay. We got virtue. Objectively good we'll give you people, some virtue for that. For children, for the nation, and for the country. Polio. And so I'm happy to go into the th- <laughs> kind of three categories virtue. that are common points of Democrat socialists next. Healthcare, union membership, and kind of the development of unions. All right, no more rules. We can interrupt each other. It's totally voluntary, unlike socialism. I'm kidding. That's my first socialist joke tonight. So let me ask. So I want to ask you just kind of generally about Democrat socialism. Sure, yeah, let's do it. Um, where would you point to as one, two, or three examples that you think are the best embodiment of the worldview that you hold? Yeah. So I think that the that all of the things that I want, you know, I do not think exist together right now in the world. But if you want to talk about places where a lot of the policy goals that I'd support, you know, have, have been implemented. I certainly don't think they're fully socialist societies by any stretch of the imagination, but I think a lot of it has been implemented. I would talk about, you know, the places you'd expect me to talk about, your Sweden's, your Finland's, your Denmark's, your Norway's. Now, these are complicated societies that, you know, there are right-wing parties win elections sometimes too, and they do things that I don't like. But I think that these are places, broadly speaking, where a lot has been done to take certain things, like healthcare, for example, outside of the market so that people have that kind of freedom that I'm talking about, that they're not, that they're not tied to jobs that they hate uh, because they're worried that, uh, that they and their families' basic needs aren't going to be taken care of if they don't stay in that subservient relationship. And you, know, you talked earlier about how you want the state to support things that are objectively good. Yes. It seems to me that living longer is objectively good. Yes. Having lower infant mortality is objectively good. And I would also say that having greater freedom to live your life how you want and not being tied to a particular job, I think that's also objective. So job mobility is interesting. I want to get into that. So I'm not stunned you mentioned <laughs> Scandinavian countries. Sure, yes. So Denmark doesn't have a minimum wage. Well, but you got you to do the other half of that. That they, uh, that they don't have a minimum wage, but they have vastly more favorable terrain for unions than the United States does. And so a lot of the wage floor is enforced that and way. Still not just, they get whatever the market says they get. You but know, then, like, nope. then you should talk about what the average wage is, which I think works out to about 1475 U.S. No government mandated minimum wage. What I find interesting, and there are some aspects of the Scandinavian countries appeal to me. Sure. According to the World Economic Freedom Index, every country outside of Norway is more economically free than the United States. And so... Is that something that would interest you? If economic well, freedom is the definition of your view, then well, I, think, I would change I think, the Bernie what, Sanders shirt. I think that what I mean by economic freedom and what they mean by economic freedom are going to be very different. I think oftentimes if you look at the methodology of those lists, it's very unclear. Like you'll get like the Cato Institute or whoever in some cases will do these lists where they rank places by freedom. And it's like, um, you know, the, the, things that, the things that they get points for, the things they don't get, don't get points for, abortion doesn't matter, whether you can have raw milk matters, you know, I think they're... At least unclear to me, but I, so, think, I, think, I think this is the bigger philosophical thing, sure. though, right? Like, let's, let's just do this rather than getting into the nitty-gritty about the list. I think that what those guys mean by economic freedom is how much business owners are free to conduct their business however they want, you know, without interference by the state. What I would mean by freedom in an economic context is the right of ordinary people to live the kinds of lives that they want to live and not be under the thumb to the extent that people are in the United States 
of whatever some corporation, you know, uh, wants them to. Also, like, I don't know if Ben is going to bring this up uh, because I don't I, I haven't heard anyone say this to Charlie Kirk because he always talks about I want limited government because I don't want obviously government to be infringing upon your own freedoms. But he never brings up the fact that at the end of the day, a lot of what you're spending every year and if you're giving up half your salary as a result of paying taxes, being a citizen of the U.S., is putting a ton of money into a massive government program, which is defense spending. Now, you don't have the freedom of choice to decide, hey, I don't want to spend this much money or X amount of money on this thing. And yet we still have to. Audio is scrubbed. I don't know what is changing. I'll be totally frank with you. It's like the audio gets scrubbed and I'm not actually doing anything to scrub or descrub it. I could try switching to this. I know. I know. I know. There's nothing there. I know. There's nothing I can do about that. I, I need to I need to restart everything from from scratch, you know, lost it completely. Yeah, I know. I know. Wants to make them do. Right. And so just to clarify sure. this, though, about some of the Scandinavian countries, yeah. th they went through massive deregulation in the 1980s. Right. Many of these Scandinavian countries did, including Denmark. Denmark has actually come out and has said, stop calling us socialist. We are not socialist. You've seen that quote. Well, I have seen it, but, uh, okay, here, but, 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 but I, would like, I would like to say, say something do. about this. Uh, and people could check out. I actually wrote something about this last summer for uh, Art Digital Media. I think I read it. Okay, well, there you go. So, so I, know, I know where you're going before you say it. All right, well, beautiful. But the audience doesn't know. So happily, though, there yeah. are people who are watching who don't know. So yes. let's, let's say it anyway. Uh, so I think that I think that saying that there's uh, that, hey, there here is this uh, center-right kind of uh, prime minister who says, no, 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 these social gains have nothing to do with Oh, what up, Jangles? Hey, everyone, go check out Jangles Science Lab's channel. Why are they on AstroTurf? It's like a self-aware joke at Turning Point's expense. I'm not sure to be honest. With socialism. And you say, oh, well, he says it, right? So, so therefore, he must be speaking for, you know, Denmark as a whole, the Danish hive mind, I think is approximately equivalent to if the only two, you know, if you were from Denmark and the only two Americans you'd ever talk to were Bernie Sanders and me, and you say, well, here's what they say about what America is all about. Here's what they say about, you know, social security or yes. the post office. This is the American point of view. I think, you know, if you look at how long socialist parties were in power in Denmark and how many of those programs came about under them, I would not say that these are societies that have achieved socialism. We can certainly talk about what, I, what that would mean to me. But I would say that these are societies where socialist parties allied with strong unions have brought about really beneficial social reforms as an effort to move farther in that direction. So let's talk about Norway, sure, a country yeah. that I'm familiar with, you're familiar with. Um, very wealthy country. Yeah. Why? Uh, because, uh, you know, I think, the, because I think the biggest reason is that they have done something that I'm sure that you wouldn't support, which is nationalize their oil you industry. You mean use fossil fuels, not keep it in the ground like Bernie Sanders would be. Bernie Sanders has tweeted, we need to keep all fossil fuels in the ground. But Norway's built a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund after. That's okay, so, uh, so, so would you support that? Nationalization? No, but it's better than keeping it in the ground. Okay, sure. I mean, look, no. I think ultimately no, we probably no. are better off, you know, transitioning to other energy That's sources. But, uh, but if we're going to use oil... I would much rather that that oil be in the hands of the people, that it fund generous social programs like in Norway. And I often do kind of get a sense when conservatives say this. It's like, oh, well, there's really nothing socialist about it. They've just nationalized the oil industry and used the proceeds to fund all of these social programs. Well, I mean, if that's not socialist, can we... <laughs> it's that meme where it's like, oh, okay, fine. Let's do that. No, that's socialism. Throw the chair. <laughs> just have that not socialist let, thing. That sounds nice to me. Let me clarify is that if there is wealth to be redistributed, there must be wealth to be redistributed. Sure. And yeah. Norway has the advantage of having some of the most strategic oil reserves in the country. And I just pinpoint it in particular because there are tens... Does America have any wealth or resources that could be redistributed? Charlie? I mean, I think I hear you say like 10 times a day, we live in the most amazing, perfect, pristine, God-semen-laden land of all and, and the richest. You often mentioned the richest country. 
needs to be this anti-fossil fuel development uh, movement. I mean, it's, it's something Norway and, us, and the United States have in common is that we have a lot of oil now. If you want to, again, I know you've said you don't, don't want to do this. No, of course, if, I think the private ownership of minerals is a strategic advantage for the United States. But let me ask you about what I sure. think is one of the reasons why I think the Scandinavian country's pursuit of egalitarianism mm. looks good on paper. Okay, let's and it. this is strict immigration. Now, this has changed in recent years because of a lot of the Syrian refugee crisis and more kind of left-wing governments taking over Sweden in particular. But Norway, for example, takes in about 70 immigrants a day, even with their more relaxed policies. America, much bigger country, albeit 2,740 legal immigrants, about 5,000 if you, inc- if you include the people going across the southern border. Do you, as being a Democrat socialist, do you support closed borders and strict immigration? No, I don't. And I'll tell you why. So uh, two reasons. One is that I think that you know, all of the economic data that I've seen says that having more immigrants actually increases the amount of wealth that society has, uh, has to go around. And the second is I would ask what the alternatives are, right? So, you know, we can do, you know, like those, those families that, you know, that you talk about, right? You know, we can, uh, you know, we can do things like separating, you know, separating families. We can do things like raiding, you know, churches, you know, to, uh, to, to drag out uh, immigrants. But I think we'd really, really, really have to step up that, like, by like a factor of 100 to actually get rid of all the undocumented immigrants in the country. Whereas I think a much better solution, if what you're worried about is hey, here are people coming in who, yeah, they, they definitely you know, contribute to economic growth, but here are people coming in who are willing to work for low wages or whatever. I think yes. a much better solution to that problem is for those people to have a pathway to citizenship so that they're not afraid to do things like join unions or they're not afraid to do things like, you know, take, uh, take their employers to court when they violate labor laws. I think that's a much better solution to that problem than the sort of heavy-handed, you know, police you know, police state kinds of tactics, which I think would be the only way that you're actually going to resolve the status quo in the other direction. One of the things I like about Norway that you just mm-hmm. said you don't like is to become a Norwegian citizen. That's good, because it seems like all the points he got across, there was nothing, I guess, within his pre-prepared notes and gotchas and zingers in his binder uh, to be able to say like, hey, by the way, uh, you're wrong, blank. Uh, so he's just like, okay, moving on. Let's uh, let's move to the next topic. Then you must speak the native language. Mm-hmm. It's a non-negotiable. You must have citizenship by birth. It's not applicable. And you must have lived in Norway for at least eight out of the past 11 years. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you can help clarify this for sure. me, because the mascot you're wearing on your shirt sure. has changed on this. Because I would, I would understand the position you're espousing more mm. if you said, hey, we're going to close off the borders. We're going to take fel- care of our fellow countrymen. We are going to reject these globalist institutions because Bernie Sanders used to say globalist. that. In 2013, There's Bernie Sanders word. said, it does not make sense to me to bring hundreds of thousands of those workers into this country mm. to work for minimum wage and compete with American kids. Bernie Sanders said in 2007, six years prior, if poverty is increasing and if wages are going down, I don't know why we need millions of people to be coming into this country as guest workers. What changed? Well, I think that the main thing that changed is that the context of both of those quotes that you just read was not about whether there should be a pathway to citizenship. It was about exactly the opposite. It was about the Bush administration's interest in 2007 and then later revivals of it in 2013 attempts to create a guest worker program, which I think he rightly compared to legalized slavery. A lot of immigrant rights groups were actually against those proposals for the same reasons, because those are things that instead of giving people the rights of Americans so that they aren't afraid to do things like organized unions, those are things that would essentially just legalize the status quo. This is a second tier of workers who are not going to have those citizenship rights, who it's much easier to, you know, it's easy, who can, you can kick out of the country if their employer decides they don't like them anymore. And I think that that is a completely different thing. I think it could also, so I think in that case, I think there's less of a contradiction there than you think. But hey, look, Bernie Sanders is not my shirt because I think that uh, I think that the man is infallible. I could rattle off a list of things that he's gotten wrong over the years. But the reason he is, is that I think he's been the most important champion of doing things like raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, like getting out, giving everybody health care, you know, ending the wars, et cetera, that would actually... 
That was a perfect retort. He knew exactly the quotes that Charlie was talking about, so that would have to be something that he just had in like a prior knowledge, but then use it to twist it on his head. So that was that was fantastic. Really materially benefit the majority of the population. And I guess I really struggle when I hear, you know, conservatives being interested in the welfare of the working class suddenly when it's this issue of yes. competition from low-wage workers, which is a question of pitting some workers over other workers, but when it's a question of doing things that would benefit workers in general, like raising the minimum wage, like giving everybody health care, then suddenly it seems to be a different story. Suddenly it seems to be that this is too interventionist, this is too well, administrative state. So, so I mean, kicking immigrants out seems like a big expansion of state power to me too. Well, I want a small yet strong government. Strong in what it does, and foreign citizens, not foreign citizens, sure, mm-hmm. or illegals in the country, should be deported, should be taken out. And I think there's a cultural aspect to it. It's deep down you agree with, and that's what Norway gets right. They realize if you don't speak the language, you don't have a a shared culture, then there's something that all of a sudden makes it less like a nation and more like a colony or more like a temporary place for corporations to make money. Let's talk about the minimum wage. The reason why I don't want abrupt, quick, let's say increases. I didn't didn't really make any points or refute what you said, but I do want to interject with just a little bit of some like light replacement theory here. Minimum wage actually hurts workers. Washington Post, a very credible new study on Seattle's $15 minimum wage, says the following. Workers have, workers have seen cut payrolls, put, they've been put off hiring, reducing hours, or letting their workers go. That is Seattle. Another study from just Target, just because Target raised mm. their wages abruptly in 2019, is that Target. workers say their hours were cut, leaving them struggling. Another one. Okay, so, so, so I can go through them. So, I have, so, so, I have well, a whole well, packet let's, of them. Let's, let's pause and do the first Seattle, couple. the same thing. First couple, I go through New York. First couple first, because in Seattle, there have been a bunch of different studies, including one from, uh, from, from UC Berkeley, I know, uh, that have, I don't know which one was published by Jeff Bezos' newspaper that you're referring to there. Trust but, me, I'm uh, no fan of the Washington but Post. The, uh, but there was, uh, there was another study from UC Berkeley saying that actually it had no effect on, on the employment rate in the restaurant industry and it achieved its goals. I know if you look at the Congressional Budget Office, which oftentimes people with your position love to cite, uh, they said that if you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and by the way, I thought it was interesting that you said abrupt, because I'm, I'm interested yes. in how, whether you'd be okay with it if you did it slowly. I, but, I, I think moderately kept up with inflation, done prudently, especially as we're about to so have a like 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 mass inflation. I think that it, that coupled <laughs> so with- So you heard it here first, Charlie Kirk advocating for what, like $27 an hour now? <laughs> workers tax cut and other pro-growth policies wouldn't be the worst thing for the economy, okay. no. I think that's a moderate economic I mean, position. By keeping up with inflation, right, you know, like you're still saying the purchasing power of low-wage workers should be what it is now. And I would say that if you want to run this argument that, well, it's actually going to hurt, you know, it's actually going to hurt workers more than help well, them. The studies show that, well, that it has. I don't think the studies do show that. Well, so here's what I said. So, so, Low-wage so, so here's, workers. Here's, here's why. Here's, I mean, like, I understand what you're saying, that the studies, the studies show, some of the studies show that minimum wage increases lead to increased unemployment. That's the big claim that's usually made. Sometimes people will also say that, you know, leads to a reduction in hours, but the big one is usually increased unemployment. And so I'd, so I'd say two things about this. First of all, the effect of minimum wage increases unemployment is like the most studied thing in empirical economics in the last several decades. And there are studies you can find that say yes. There are a lot of studies that you can find that say no. And, this, and a, a word I almost never hear from people who say that it's going to lead to unemployment increases is meta-study, right? In other words, if you look at a bunch of studies over time and see like, you know, since you could have, you know, very small sample sizes and, you know, and making big conclusions from very small sample sizes is generally, and then like making a big deal about them in the press, that's how people end up believing that plants can think and coffee cures cancer, you know, that they looked at like some study with some super small sample size. But when you do the meta-study of a bunch of different studies, most of those show no. But let's say for the sake of argument, yes, let's say that it does lead to some unemployment increase. Because you agree certain studies do show that. Yes, certain studies do show that. I think, I think most of them, and especially meta-studies over time, say no, but sure, let's say yes. So if yes, would that mean that it was going to hurt workers more than help them? Well, we could look at like the Congressional Budget Office, what they said in uh, 2019, which was that um, two-thirds confidence that you'd have a range of unemployment effects somewhere in between zero 
and 3.7 million, and most likely they said 1.3 billion people would lose their jobs. Now that's bad. I don't want 1.3 billion people to lose that's their jobs. That's a lot of jobs. But they also said that 27 million people would keep the jobs that they have right now and and be paid more and uh, and would have more purchasing power. And so we say, okay, we have 27 million people who are being lifted out of poverty by this. We have 1.3 billion people out of jobs. Now, even if there was nothing that you could do about that, I'd still say that treating this as a knockdown, well, this is going to help poor people, working poor people more than it's hurt them, more than it's going to help them, I don't think makes sense. But also, I don't think we have to accept that those 1.3 billion people, if that's the true estimate, have to be permanently out of a job. We could have public works programs that could employ those 1.3 million people, give them let, dignified, let, let me, let me unionized public, public sector jobs. And if you don't think that there's plenty of work for those 1.3 million people to do in terms of federal public works. Trust me, I could give you a long list of things so they could be doing. Let, let me build out the study, and then I want to ask you a question. Sure. So low-wage workers on average now clock 9% fewer hours and are $125 less each month. That's Seattle. There's another one. New York City businesses struggle to keep up after a minimum wage increase. Would you support eliminating the FICA contribution for workers? Seven, that's a 7% tax on wages before we even talked about raising the minimum wage. Well, I'd like to talk about raising the minimum wage with no preconditions. But, 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 uh, but why, why not the workers' tax cut? That's what I always don't understand, because we tax workers at 7%. Mm-hmm. 7% of our workers here lose their paycheck as half of their FICA contribution. I never hear that from workers' rights advocates. Why? Well, I think that, I think that first of all, the first question you'd have to ask is, what's the money that's going to be generated by that for those workers? Then the second question that you want to ask is, what's going to be lost on the other end in terms of services if that's cut? And I think that paying people a higher minimum wage, having those 27 million people get a living wage. Ultimately, Charlie wants to attack this from like a corporate perspective. Like, Why should the corporation have to demand that the workers themselves have to pay this amount, which could be used for a whole bunch of different things? Like At the end of the day, don't you care about the workers? I can give them a 7%, and, I can give them a 7% wage increase tomorrow. And one, it's called cutting the FICA tax. Yeah. Every working person deserves 7% of their wages that are currently being taken by them by the government. Why don't you instantaneously so, agree? So what, so what are you going to... Well, because I know... What the other what the other shoe is that's going to drop there? What are you going to cut to uh, to uh, pay for that uh, that tax okay, increase? Okay, so there's there's plenty. I could name a whole litany of departments. I think I would cut to try to pay for it. But let's pretend that it's paid for, like everything Washington D.C. says. Yes, if, if, you, if you could, if you could cut workers' wages and not well, workers' wages, the, sorry, the taxes. So workers the taxes on workers' wages. If you could cut that, and on the other end, there would be absolutely no loss in anything that's a beneficial thing that's well, going to make workers' lives better. Then sure, why not? Security. But I think that you should still agree, I think you should still raise. I think you should still raise the minimum wage because I think, again, having those 27 million people now having a living wage, having the ripple effects for lots of people who are already making more than minimum wage, it's going to increase their wages. And then 1.3 million people need new jobs. Trust me, we can take care so, of that. So you're obviously no fan of President Trump or his administration. During his presidency, the bottom 10% of workers actually had an income growth faster than the top 10% of workers. And so what we saw was a real blue collar boom over well, I mean, in the I, prior I think, administration I think, I mean, I think what without saw- having to abruptly raise the minimum wage. And the reason was, let me just finish, is an emphasis on entrepreneurship is this is an indicator that I don't hear talked about a lot, which is how many new businesses are being started. And when you raise the minimum wage, it's harder for the, the deli owner, the dry cleaner to enter into the market because all of a sudden the labor pool is like, man, $15 an hour, I could barely pay to keep the lights on. So if we want new business and you agree, entrepreneurship is a good thing, right? I think it's I think it's good to have new businesses. I'd like more of them to be organized as worker cooperatives. We're going to talk can, about unions in we a can, second. We can, we can get into that. I but I, get but, but, this uh, is a really strange tactic, though. Like Charlie Kirk is basically throwing out like I, I don't even know if you could follow under anecdote Andy, but it's something that is a lot more complex than simply a talking point will allow them to talk about a frame, right? Like okay, so there, you could say that there was an increase in the amount of jobs under President Trump. What kind of jobs were they? App economy jobs? Were they contract work? Uh, Do they have benefits? Did they have health care? Anything like that? Because just saying a blanket statement like well did you know that the lowest 10% of uh, workers actually saw an increase in their uh, wages as as compared to the top 10% of workers? 
happened to unions. But, 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 I, but, but I do just want to say on what you're claiming about the Trump economy, because I think I think this is an important point, right? Why, so yes, sure. Why? What if? What? What explains those numbers that you just mentioned? You'd say it's a new emphasis in entrepreneurship. I'd say it's two. Things. I, I could go through other things. Okay, too, but, but including but, but, an energy renaissance. But, but I think I think I think the primary thing. Presenting. Thank you for the tier two. Very generous of you in the fifteen month streak. There are two things. One that quite a few states during that time period actually did raise their minimum wage, and I think that had a big effect on that. Two, sure, that employment increases. Uh, give workers more bargaining power, which a lot of conservatives now object to. They say, oh, nobody wants to work. But employment uh, employment increases give workers more bargaining power in the labor market, and that's a good thing. But that's not really this new emphasis on entrepreneurship that Trump was doing. If you look at all the employment figures, um, whether you're looking at the overall civilian employment rate in the United States or whether you're breaking oh, it down, you, black, white, Hispanic, Hispanic, whatever, all of those, you see the same trend, Political which is that in 2009, uh, you know, at the beginning of the Obama presidency, when the, when the effects of the 2008 crash were really coming in, all of those were way up here, you know, that, they, uh, that it was like, you know, you have like 10% unemployment. Uh, over the course of the, eight, uh, of the eight years of Obama, it goes from 10% to 4.7% overall civilian, you know, unemployment. And then sure, under the four years of Trump or, you know, like, like we'll give them a pass for the COVID part, but they, uh, but like under under those Thank years you. of Trump, then uh, you you go from four point seven to three point five. So that is a continuation at an overall slower rate, but a continuation of what had happened before. And the reason I'm bringing that up is not that I'm a big Obama guy. I mean, look, no, I know you're not. As you know, I'm a Bernie Sanders would be a good start guy. But and I want to get into that. Too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because mm-hmm. I, I think you are but, sure well, cleverly cloaking your okay, radicalism well, I, I don't, in three issues that are. Agreed I don't. On. We're gonna. We're gonna. Get I don't. To the I don't think so. I think I front loaded the radicalism and said these would be baby steps in the right direction. And I'm very confused. I, I guess, about how, how why does he keep looking at the rest of his staff and smiling like that's a gotcha or like oh we all know it's coming. Hey, all right, boys, can't wait to reveal that this guy is a socialist. He's been hiding his power levels all along. Could be a populist we're, without we're supporting all, those baby we're steps. We're all Hegelians now, I suppose. Let me but, ask no, you no, 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 but, but but I do want to I do want to finish the point because I think it's a board one, right? That the that it's not that I think Obama is great. It's that I think that if you're going to say the populist thing about you know Trump and you know Trump economics, even though. Uh, this is a guy who appointed hardcore union busters to the National Labor Relations Board. This is a guy who tried to throw millions of people off of uh, off of health care, you know, in terms of going against the Medicaid expansion. This is a guy, you know, who tried to make it a lot harder to qualify for food aid for those families he talked about. That the big populist thing is that he oversaw economic growth and hence job growth. Well, hey, if that's enough to be a populist, Barack Obama was a better populist than he was. And Bill Clinton was a big populist because he oversaw lots of economic no, growth and, and in that's the not what, I'm what, what I'm saying, though, is that it's mischaracterized that the people that you say you care about, the lower workers, they actually did really well under those four years. I think Trump could have been more that. conservative, more popular in certain things. And just to clarify on the, food, sure. on the food stamp issue, millions of people got off of food stamps under Trump voluntarily because their wages went up. But I, I don't want to yeah, get you, too bogged down. Yeah, I really don't want to get too bogged down I mean, on the, on the yeah, Trump Yeah, you, you had thing. that extra but, one percentage change of uh, unemployment going down, which is a continuation of previous right. trends. So, sure. so, so let me kind of ask you <laughs> uh, more broadly. I guess we could go into yeah. some of these other aspects. I have a of question this. I'd love to ask you in a minute, by the way, but go for it. Yeah, you're free to do that too, by the way. Do you trust the government? This is getting less civil. Do I trust the government? Uh, do I trust the government um, <laughs> what a generic to, uh, to, to, tell me, uh, to tell me the truth, to, uh, <laughs> to do things uh, that, no, the government, by and large, uh, that I think that uh, those uh, millionaires and billionaires, the guy in the shirt likes to talk about, exert vastly too much influence. But here's where I think people often go wrong from that too, true premise that the government is untrustworthy. I think premise is fine. But the conclusion, therefore, we should have less government in the sense of we should have less expansive social services, uh, we shouldn't give everybody health care. I think that that's a fundamental confusion because I think that there's a difference between talking about what the government can do to you 
And there we're talking about police, ICE, you know, uh, the, the expansion of the national security state yeah, and, what, and, and what the government has a legal obligation <laughs> it's to it's, it's do government for I like. you in terms of supporting what I would see as fundamental so, human rights like health care and education. Let me tell you where I think there's a, a flaw in this. And I, I really want you to talk about this. You say health care and education. There must be bureaucrats to enforce these things. You need the administrative state. So then you get the CDC, you get the NIH, you get unregulated agencies that you as being someone who focuses on democracy, focuses on the power of the people. Where is the check and balance against the CDC, the NIH, HHS? For every government program, you need hundreds of thousands of desk workers, which is where well, the word bureaucrat comes from in French. So you say you don't trust the government, yet you support expanding the social services, which will yeah, then necessarily expand government. Why do you want to expand something you don't trust? Well, first of all, congratulations on the French vocabulary. I like it. But I yeah. have other words, too. We could <laughs> operate no les deluge, which means after me the flood. We could talk about all my favorite French terms if you'd like. Uh, we could do a whole thing. Are you write for the Jacobin magazine, for yeah. goodness sake, so we could you know, exchange notes on sure, Robespierre sure, and Jean-Jacques sure, sure. Rousseau. I've only read the confessions once. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I like that because what Ben was just pointing out there is that you're not actually adding anything to the conversation. You're just trying to like demonstrate that you have some form of higher intelligence by adding little tidbits at the end of everything. But you have yet to make a real salient point, which is, you know, pretty much how Charlie Kirk operates. Um, I'd be happy to do all of that. Uh, although, you know, my French is like Duolingo. I can't do that much. But, uh, uh, but, I, I'm done. But, I promise. But, but I would say that if you don't want bureaucrats to have more power, if that's the big objection. No, that, that's that, part oh, of the well, objection. Okay, it's but, an but, element of it. Sure. So let's, let's start with that element. So if you don't want bureaucrats to have more power, then the thing that you should really object to, right? Because you, you said earlier, you know, you think we've got to have some kind of social safety net. So we're agreeing that there are some social services programs. We're arguing about how expansive they should be and how they should work. So Generous so, versus limited. Sure. Okay. But this is the thing. If you want those bureaucrats to have less power, you don't want limited. That's the last thing that you want. You want generous. And here's why. Here's you're gonna, why. You're gonna I, I, I know. I know. I know. Like, I, I really liked what you just did there. The, uh, like, that was, that was some good... You know, the, uh, yeah. uh, so, but, so, so to, but like you should make the distinction. You do want government programs. You want vast ones, enormous ones. You want armed ones, people to have guns, people to have yes, a ton of state power that they can exude upon the populace. You are fine with all that. You also want a very powerful military and the military industrial complex to be generating tons more uh, wealth and income. That's all fine with you. But the other aspects, like perhaps social safety nets and stuff, that's the government that you want to be either limited or non-existent. Strain their power, you must give them a lot of power. No. You're not giving them any power. You're taking away their power. It's a really simple argument. Here's how it goes. The, uh, that means-tested programs give power to bureaucrats. When you say you have to jump through all these poops to qualify for something, and there's some bureaucrat who gets to decide whether you get it so or not, here's why bureaucrats have, have more power. Whereas when you say this is a legal right that every single person has as a citizen, no Canadian is having a bureaucrat decide whether they qualify for healthcare. Or in Finland, uh, you talked about all of the policies that, you know, in Norway that you thought would be an issue for me. Finland, is the poorest uh, where they have, uh, yeah. okay, I don't think it's because of this, but they, uh, but you know, in, uh, in Finland, where uh, they don't even have uh, private schools, and certainly uh, you have a right to higher education uh, as a citizen, the way that, you know, the way that, you know, you have historically in lots of countries, and I think it's worked very well. But when you have that, you don't have you know, students jumping through financial aid, bureaucracy, you know, hurdles. And does this person qualify to get school? Does that person qualify to school where bureaucrats have the power to decide what's up? So, because that's the case where bureaucrats have power over you. and everybody gets something as a right of citizenship, bureaucrats have no power but, in that circumstance. So, but let, let me ask you something, though. So you want Medicare for all. Yeah. Yet HHS is the largest civilian branch of our government. So av as we have expanded Medicare, as we've expanded Medicaid, it hasn't been means tested as you want. We have hundreds of thousands of desk workers that are doing the means testing. Are you qualified? Yeah. Medicare reimbursements. And so even yes, under your example, it's woefully idealistic. The point is, Medicaid is a means you testing. You cannot have a generous social program 
without a massive bureaucratic and, dare I say, corrupt administrative state. Well, I think Woodrow that, Wilson would even say that. Well, I mean, you need the administrative state. You think, you think I like Woodrow Wilson, the, uh, the guy who... Probably. The he guy, was a college professor, so... Okay, well, okay. And a college president, uh, so he's kind of in your tr- world. Well, okay, trust me, neither of those things aren't any points for me, but, uh, <laughs> okay. but I think that... Uh, That's fair. Uh, but, I mean, Woodrow Wilson is the guy who resegregated uh, the uh, the federal uh, the federal bureaucracy oh, after trust it, me, it, it integrated. Do he a whole put, speech. He put Eugene G.P. Debs in jail. Nobody on the left is going to see Woodrow Wilson as a hero. Liberals. Nobody on the left. But I was just going to say. I, I know plenty of people that would, but that's fine. I don't, I don't, think, about, I don't, I don't think you're going to find a lot of CR, LBJ, John Dewey, all these people believed but, in a strong administration. Well, state. I mean, you're rattling off a bunch of liberals, but that's okay. We don't, we don't need to argue about historical <laughs> figures. Let's just say this. Nice. If nice. you're talking about administrative state, bureaucracy, well, your example liberals, is Medicaid, yes. uh, which I'll is name a, a bunch means of liberals. tested program. Uh, and even at that, even despite the means testing, which is the part that gives the bureaucrats their power, which is also the part I'm objecting to, even despite that, we're talking about bureaucracies. As I think you mentioned earlier, bureaucracy, the government has no monopoly of bureaucracies, plenty of bureaucracies in the private sector. And if you want to know which programs have the smallest overhead, right? Even Medicaid, even despite the means testing, Medicaid, Medicare, all of those have much smaller administrative overhead than any of the private insurance companies because the private insurance companies, one, they have to plan out their strategy for competing with each other. And two, the private insurance companies have a vast bureaucracy that is dedicated to finding ways to deny people's claims because they've always got one eye on the bottom line for shareholders. And one question I'm very curious Please, about, it's, by, it's by, by the way, is that? that they, uh, is, um, you know, you object for all of these reasons. You think it's too interventionist. You think it's too much administrative state to just providing everybody with health care. These are all elements of the with, critique. With, yeah. you know, providing people with health care is a human right so that you can have like what people I know in the UK always tell me, which is, hey, when I, you know, when whatever, my mom got cancer, when whatever the situation is, people will say, the only person I ever talked about this was, was with a doctor, which is very different from Americans' experience with healthcare. If you can object to that on the grounds that it's that's too much big government, I am really curious whether you'd say the same thing for like uh, fire services. Like, like, would you be okay with it if we didn't have public fire services? Absolutely if- not. As I said, small but strong. Okay. The government exists as a preamble to the Constitution, <laughs> Just amongst one. many other things, to secure the blessings yeah. of liberty, to ensure domestic tranquility. And Hamilton said it best, that you need a nimble yet effective federal government. Good at what it does, but not overreaching. And that's the whole idea of conservative populism is within this constitutional republic framework. I'm a big fan of firefighters, police officers. I'm a big fan of border patrol. I'm a big fan of, of all these sort of things. But when, when all of a sudden I believe you get outside of the constitutional limits is where you birth this fourth branch of government. And our mutual hatred of Woodrow Wilson is a perfect example of this because he really believed the state, this is a Hegelian idea, will usher in that utopia. That the state is God. That through the mechanisms of the state, we will be able to turn the chapter and with it remake the police man. state is definitely person, Hegelian. I believe that FDR did. Lyndon Baines Johnson did as well, where we as conservatives and conservative populists say, hold on a second. That is not what the state is there to do for. Let me just say one last thing, which is that we, the state is there to preserve the natural law with prudence yeah. and wisdom to hopefully develop families and foster children, not to try to meet, remake human beings. When it comes to health care, not only do I have a moral complaint that it's not the role of government, it's also not good at doing it, well, and it also hurts the everyday okay, common I, I, I man. So I, have two, I, I, I don't think either of those things are true. But I have a moral but, 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 argument, but, 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 and I also have utilitarian okay, well, let's argument. Start, I just want to make sure that's clear. Let's start with the moral argument, because okay. I am very unclear on this. Because Everyone remember when Charlie Kirk went to private health care, but they were so overrun at the time that he had to sleep outside, and all of a sudden he was like, this is just abhorrent. How can anyone treat me this way? And the internet was all with glee because they're like, uh, yeah, that's that's you with access to health care, my friend. Some people don't even get that choice. Why is it that having public firefighters or public police uh, is not overreach, but having public health care is? Why would it be objectionable if instead of having public fire services that everybody gets to use, you had 
everybody just having to have private fire insurance. And if you had a better private fire insurance plan, they'd probably put out your fire you know, faster. Or maybe we had public fire, fire insurance, but only for people, the poorest people or the oldest people, which would be the exact equivalent for healthcare or the same thing for, uh, for, you know, for policing, the equivalent you know, for like security insurance. Because all of these things seem very similar to me because having your house burned down, being victimized by a crime, or needing chemotherapy. Those are all cases where your life and limb is in danger. Like these seem pretty parallel to me. What, what do you see as the big well, disanalogy? So, so the first, first problem is mostly local, police and fire. So therefore it's more accountable. Okay. So the dollars don't go to some sort of albatross the of Washington, D.C. of unelected, unknown, kind of just unchecked bureaucrats. That's number one. Number two, we do have a system in the country, despite what you're saying, where if you need healthcare, you will be taken care of. Is it well, broken? Is well, it inadequate? Said, though, right? Well, hold on a second. It's already, I'm saying it is. Ill- Are you talking about like ambulances? As in like, if you're about to die, you can dial 911 and you'll get an ambulance and then be charged for that after the fact? Uh, okay. Legal to deny someone service of care. Illegal. Now, do we have problems with our healthcare system? Do you think if you could put me in a room and I could strike a huge bargain with you? I think that there are elements of the German system ER? that are admirable. I will say that. Where you have a public system and a private system. Where I start to all of a sudden say, time out, no go, no fly zone, is where I hear people like Bernie Sanders, and I'm paraphrasing, who want to get rid of private insurance as we know it. That's a big mistake. Here's how I think the biggest problem with yeah. healthcare is. It's not individualized. It's way too, be- you know, way too bureaucratic, mm-hmm. way too top down. And yes, we have pharmaceutical companies that are addicting people to drugs that they should not be addicted to. We have a sick care problem in our country. And I agree with a lot of people on the left with this, on this, maybe we'll agree that we have an obesity problem. We have a problem of how we get our food. We have a corporate farming problem. I agree with all those things. Do I think that a government run system of healthcare that will be more similar to how the IRS or how the postal service works, that's how somehow gonna be the solution to that? Absolutely not. Well, but if you put the, me post, room, the postal service is amazing, and I do not well, think I do not say that again. The postal service is amazing. It has been an engine of upward mobility. It has been right, an engine uh, of racial equality. If you are uh, building the black middle class, massively an engine of that. Have you ever it, used it is, the postal? It is. Service? I have, and the postal service will carry a letter from here to Alaska so for. No, not for the same price, and they're certainly but not going to serve. You know more. it's going to get there. No, I do not know that, and it's certainly not going to do it. It's never going to get there with as much service to out of the way rural areas. I got to give you credit. Anything. I've never anything. heard anyone defend the post like office. A, like like as cheap. Well, you need to talk to more people because like the post office <laughs> is an amazing institution, and uh, it should be massively expanded. In fact, one of the best things I think they have. Here's the thing: there's not really a profit incentive to be delivering packages or parcels to very remote locations or very remote areas. I can tell you from experience in Canada, for example, there's a lot of indigenous communities that would not receive things like. Uh, necessary supplies and food if it wasn't for the Canadian Postal Service being able to uh, transport items to them at a loss. So once you introduce the Dave Rubin idea that it's like, well, uh, if we just had all these private companies, uh, they could do things way better. Like UPS could handle everything. It's like, well, most of those companies are going to be doing what is in their best interest to turn a profit. They're going to be beholden to their shareholders. And at the end of the day, if delivering remote items to a very far away location is something they can't do at a loss, they're not going to do it. Be like, yeah, okay, they'll deliver your, your package. It's going to cost you $575 as opposed to right now where it's like 50 In some of those Scandinavian countries is postal banking, which if we did that, Bernie Sanders' proposal would immediately put out of, the, out of business all the payday uh you know, payday loan uh, vampires that, you know, prey on unbanked people would create millions of new good unionized jobs. Postal service is so, great. But I, I do want to go back because I don't want this to get I, 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 I don't want this, this to get lost. The post office lost hundreds of thousands of packages and was six months late. That's who you want to run our healthcare system? I think that, well, I first of all, I think that... He's not saying the postal service will also do Medicaid. Like, it's, it's not like they're just going to suddenly add a brand. It's not like the Taco Bell KFC fusion, you see, where you walk into a post office and it's also like a doctor's office. That's not what he's suggesting. Uh, I think that if you actually have a fairer look at the numbers, I think the Postal Service does uh, does do a really good job. I think that oftentimes when people say no, uh, they are not using the same metrics to evaluate it they'd use to evaluate everything else. But 
If you want to know something that would be very much like what Medicare for All would be like if we had it in the United States, then I'd say looking at delivery of packages is probably not what you want to do. What you probably want to look at is countries like Canada, where they already have Medicare for All, Great Britain, where they've gone further, and the, pos- the, the hospitals though. are publicly owned. That's that's all the stuff. Let's and, talk about and, that. Well, okay, but those are places. That's a different where, thing. Where, where people where people live longer, where let fewer of their babies die, uh, where uh, the rate of mortality amenable to healthcare is way better. Or look, you said you want it to be local. Uh, you know that you don't like the fact. Super localized. That, sure, sure, local, great. So if uh, if all the hospitals were municipally owned, you'd be cool with that. All the hospitals. It was- so I noticed the Brits in the chat are saying Royal Mail got privatized and it's gone. It's utterly gone to shit. Uh, Charlie doesn't know about the Herms in the UK shipping service. They lose everything. Wow. But I thought once private institutions take over public ones, all of a sudden everything is flawless. What happened there? Would be, well, first of all, that happened. That's actually the case in a lot of places. There's a lot of county-run hospitals all across the country. I'm not denying they're county-run. Oh, yeah, we got times county, Okay, so you would be okay with that. So it really has nothing to do with centralization. Well, no, it does. Trust me, the city of Chicago can be equally, if not more, corrupt than the Kingdom of Washington D.C. Is it, is, is, is it going to be more corrupt than uh, the private insurance companies? I mean, that's a good question. Okay, but, but, you question. But, but, but you did also say right, and I really want to make sure we that, we, that we, local we, we, we is generally better. But it, this, this, I'm not going to die on the Cook County is a great this county. Does, hill. Well, this, this does this does go back to what you said earlier, though, when I asked you about fire protection. Because you said, well, the you know the difference is that uh, nobody could be turned down from the hospital. Uh, Th- yeah. That is a law. Yes, that that is that is that is a law. I'm glad that it's a law. I, I, I am too. I, okay, good, wonderful. We we agree on that. That is a good government intervention to stop the private sector from doing what it would otherwise do and did otherwise do before that law was passed. But um, also, I would say, do the equivalent for the fire services. That the only people who uh, who get it. Uh, without having to pay at the point of service, are the poorest people, are the oldest people. Uh, everybody else has to rely on private fire insurance, which varies wildly in quality. And if you don't have private uh, fire insurance and you're not poor enough to qualify for the means-tested, bureaucrat-enabling uh, system for poor people and you're not old enough for the other one and you end up having to have the fire department come and save you anyway, then you have a giant bill that's going to so bankrupt l- you. Do let me you ask think you that question. sounds like a fair system? No. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. So is that, here's where... <laughs> He wants to pivot, but no, of course not. Like when you lay it out like that, it's like, oh yeah, that doesn't sound great at all. How do you define healthcare? This is a very important question, mm-hmm. right? Because healthcare could be, hey, I just got a gunshot wound, I need to be taken care of. Absolutely. Or, or healthcare could be, I'm 800 pounds overweight, I'm eating terribly, I have no sort of interest to exercise or eat well. Because I'm lazy. Why all of a sudden should that person be put into the same exact level of care of someone that has saved money and taken care of their health? Why should someone who's 800 pounds overweight be given in this sort of you know realm. Why should human agents? Well, why not take this to its logical conclusions? What about people that were genetically predisposed to get cancer, and all of a sudden one of them gets cancer? I mean, should we all have to pay for that? He knew he was most likely going to get cancer at the end of the day. I mean, family members got it, so is that really fair? I mean, come on, Charlie. And choice have zero emphasis well, on what you're uh, what you're describing. The only difference between that and what already exists in the United States is that we would have to add, and they're rich enough that they can afford really high quality medical care. Right now, somebody who's 800 pounds, who doesn't watch their diet, who chain smokes, et cetera. I agree, yes. But, you can add chain smoking But sure, yeah, yeah, all, the, all those things, all those things. So you think that so, none no, 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 should no. be given a preference? Well, what, here's what I'm saying, that I think in the system that we have right now, somebody who checks every single one of those boxes, but uh, is rich enough to afford the best medical care, skips in line ahead of Bingo. the person who takes care of their health, exercises every day, doesn't smoke, eats well, but lost their job or just is uh, is cobbling together four part-time jobs like so many Americans are and thus doesn't have so employer this health is an, insurance. It's an interesting question. So you believe just because you have better money, you shouldn't be able to have better stuff? I believe... Or more money, better stuff. I believe that when it comes to something like healthcare, uh, no. That, that's I, a very broad I, thing. I, 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 I do not believe that people should get life-saving services. 
do you not agree that rich people are better human beings? Ben Burgess. Can I can I at least get you on record saying that? That rich people are just better. Can can you can we agree on that at least? Purposes preferentially because of how much money they have. I think that So how much money they've saved. How about that? Someone saved their whole life and they said, in case there's a disaster, I'm gonna put five hundred dollars away a month. They get to age forty five. I think you can't wrap your head around this, but he's saying that we should take the profit motive out of things like healthcare. That it shouldn't be a matter of how rich or poor you are. That it's just something that should be accessible to every single American. And I, I don't think you can, can process that. Because right away you're going to this weird argument like, do you not think rich people should have better lives, Ben? Because they're rich? Because of course I assume they've all earned it. So, uh, you know, ergo, every Bitcoin billionaire should have the ability now to just own humans. And all of a sudden they realize that they have some sort of health complication. They shouldn't be able to take advantage of the money they've saved for their entire life. Well, this actually goes back to the very first thing that I said, like the, uh, the opening, the opening couple of sentences what is justice, that, that, I guess, that, right? I said, that I said, because what I said is that I don't want some people to have dramatically worse lives than others because of factors outside of uh, their control. Now, what about if we, if they we, can we, control, though? Well, if we like li- saving, if money. we if we live in a world <laughs> where all ex- just save more, you pores. Why? Why can't you afford your hospital bills? You didn't save. God damn it. You're so detached from reality. Like the idea that if all of a sudden you have like a broken, like I can't process this. This is coming from uh, a complete point of privilege being in Canada because I've gone to walking clinics many times for scares, things I'm like, oh no, I don't know if this is cancerous. I should get it checked out. I couldn't imagine being in America where I'm not allowed to do that because if I do that, my kids might not eat. Or if I if I go to the hospital and be like, can I please get an x-ray? They're going to be like, okay, that's about $6,000. Like, that's, uh, that's like three months of rent. So yeah, no, not doing that one. Yeah, I, I guess I'll just live with whatever I have right now. We'll figure it out. I didn't save enough. Should have saved. Should have saved every day for that one medical emergency. And ideally, there's no additional costs after my initial x-ray. Because, hey, if I need to get surgery or anything like that, oh, fuck. $150,000? Yeah, see ya. Economic inequality was due to thrift versus indolence or laziness versus industriousness. I would have much less objection to this stuff that I do in the world where we actually live, where somebody who saved up their whole lives, but, uh, but then... Uh, they have, uh, you know, they have unexpected uh, medical expenses that bankrupt them, which happens all the time, uh, that they have, uh, you know, is, is, is going to get worse health care than somebody who has never saved at all. But as somebody uh, like, you know, if somebody like uh, if Hunter Biden, right, had some massive medical bill tomorrow, he would probably have. I mean, yeah, considering would, his would, lifestyle. Sure, sure. Right. So if Hunter Biden had that huge medical bill tomorrow, then. He- oh, great bait. It's a delicious little piece of chum right there, just dangling in front of Charlie LeCure. Click, hey, come on. I know you hate Hunter Biden and his penis. Let's talk about him. He's rich as fuck. He can get all the healthcare he needs. Yeah. And yet he does drugs, openly does drugs. And as well, he uses sex workers. So what do you think about that, Charlie? Should should he and his vast amounts of wealth be able to get any healthcare he wants while people who have worked their entire lives, struggled, but exercised, lived super healthy, ate the best foods, but then by, you know, just unfortunate chance, get a disease? Is, is that what you think? He would get in line ahead of people for, for multiple reasons, both access to power and also money. Sure. So that's yeah. a good example. Those are uh, those are both bad things, but they have largely a, unearned. And I agree. Sure. So and I would say the same thing about the Walton children. I would say the same thing about anybody uh, who is inheriting money. When you go to when you go to the hospital wow. or. You know, OK, well, maybe that's like all of this. Give them an argument. Shit. Let's learn how to debate on the left kind of stuff. Maybe it's pointless. We just need to, like, give them bait that they want. Like, hey, I know what you despise. I'm going to talk to you about it. Hey, OK, you agree with me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Fuck Hunter Biden. Let's have health care. Medicare for all. Sounds good. Or you go to buy insurance. 
they don't ask you, did this money come from so, being thrifty and saving your whole well, life? Let me ask you a question. Or, 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 or did this money come from stock ownership? Or did this, did this money come from inheritance? They just ask, do you have the money right. to afford and this? That, and that's part of markets, right? Is that you're not able to make a moral claim for every dollar bill, but generally markets will go towards value and value creation. I actually want to close this thought on one thing because it goes to your other thing that actually, you're actually, very- actually, actually, can I- I mean, if you'll indulge me, can I uh, can I can I ask you like a thirty second question? Sure, because I got I really want to. I, I, I know but... I know we're coming up to it, yes. but, I, but I'm so fascinated by this, sure. right? So we agreed. Is the firefighter thing again? It's not the firefighter. Okay, good. Okay, okay. Uh, although you know, I think there's more to discuss. I'm there, very anti-fire. Well, that's that's good. Uh, you should be equally anti-cancer, and then I am just, like, just like we have fire departments, we should have Medicare that's why for I think all. people who but eat well the... and don't smoke and make good decisions should be rewarded for human agency. Yeah, which is not at all what because the inverse of your statement. The inverse is you say that people should not be penalized for factors outside of their control. The inverse is that I think people should be rewarded for factors inside of their control. Yeah, and most of most of what we've got right now is not about. I agree with that. And what do you propose, Charlie? Is there going to be like just a, a good credit system every now and then you get a little coupon it's like hey did you smoke this week no okay you get five health credits yeah oh goody i've got 150 health credits maybe i can afford an x-ray pretty soon but the, so but, i but, want but, a system but, 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 that rewards people for good choices okay so here's what i want to ask real real quick sure. i promise he basically so, wants the chinese social credit system is what i'm hearing uh we established earlier how much we both liked jeff bezos yes just like that's jeff you gonna bezos. ask me should i raise his taxes well because this is why i'm curious about it because i because I, I, I saw in 2019 yes with kyle kalinsky yeah and he asked you would you be willing to raise jeff bezos's taxes by like one percent to provide housing for every single homeless veteran and your response at that time was that you'd hope he'd do it voluntarily and i think at this point we've established that's not going to happen he preferred to buy a spaceship so that's probably true uh, yeah so if you put a gun to my head would i would i raise his taxes i mean i guess if i was a representative i guess yes for okay, all, that's good. This, this is progress. I'm so pro- Growth. <laughs> Growth. That's <laughs> actually qualified. If you put a gun to my head and I was like, I guess, I guess I could house 30,000 homeless veterans by raising his taxes by one. I, mm, I don't want to say yes. I just, I wish those homeless veterans had made better life decisions. No. No, they made good life decisions. They're heroes. Well, I wish they I wish they hadn't eaten as much sugar. No, no, they can have all the sugar they want. Fuck. Fuck. I said, I guess conditionally, if all of a sudden there would be a comparable piece of legislation alongside of it that would actually value and prioritize things I cared about. If it was just to raise his taxes to go into the curb, current albatross okay, but, 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 of the but, but, administrative but if, but if, state, I'd rather have him buy spaceships than give money to Fauci. But, but, if, but if it was earmarked for it wasn't a house Fauci. for homeless It wasn't veterans. Fauci. No, no, no. It wasn't give money to Fauci. It, it was to house homeless veterans. You know, be, be genuine. And you would say yes. The now. answer is yes, because I think Jeff Bezos, is, from, from a moral standpoint. This is such good progress. But let me tell you why. Let me clarify why. Sure. Jeff Bezos games your favorite department, the Postal Service. He games the corporate tax loophole system. Yeah. Jeff Bezos has a total disregard for what I consider to be the American way of life. And he has this weird fascination of going into orbit. And guess what? I hope he stays there. Okay. Well, I congratulate you on this progress. <laughs> cool well, story. You bro. could call it progress. You could also call it a commitment to prudence. Uh, I want to ask you a question. I will get back to the question. <laughs> I want to ask you. Whoa, what just happened there? That was a massive jump cut. What, what did we lose? Oh, no. Like, y'all saw that, right? That's not just me. Well, I congratulate you on this progress. <laughs> well, I mean, you could call it progress. You could also call it a commitment to prudence. Uh, I want to ask you a question. <laughs> yep. <laughs> huge. I guess, I guess we'll never know. I mean, it must have been one hell of a point that rattled Charlie Kirk because he's leaving in a lot of stuff here that uh, seems to be just objectively, like, ridiculous. But sure. Question. I will get back to the question I want. I want to ask you what, and I want to get more into mm. philosophy here. Sure. What's your view of Karl Marx? Um... My view of Karl... He loves philosophy because he's got a whole bunch of quotes prepared and he can rattle off a whole bunch of different philosophers throughout time. And then he'll be starting to talk to you about Plato and Aristotle and soon enough he'll be into like the Hegelian dialectic and, and you won't realize it. You'll be like, wow, Charlie Kirk, you are astute. I had no idea you knew this much. All right, all right. I'm out of my element, clearly. 
By the way, Ben happens to be a professor of philosophy, so this should be good. Karl Marx is pretty positive. I think that um, I think that you can certainly find things like anybody who's writing the mid nineteenth century that you know, if there's nothing that you think is wrong about hundred, you know, whatever hundred and fifty years later, then like something has gone very wrong, right? You know, there should there should be ways that you can say no, this part no longer makes sense. You got to rethink that. Uh, I think you have to look at it all apart. But I think that I think that Karl Marx is a basically. Uh, positive figure. I think that the theory of history is mostly right. And I also, so yeah, I see you smiling. I'm happy to get into it. I'm happy to debate uh, I, I, Hegelian, I, the Hegelian well, dialectic I, and the phenomenology of spirit. Oh, okay. No, uh, not, not debate, we can not, discuss not, it. Not but. where I thought this was going, but that's cool. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, that's basically what you mean by the theory well, of history. Well, I, I, right? I don't think it is. I think there's a big difference there. He and, was the head of the young, young Hegelians. But. Well, he started out as a Hegelian and then oh, he rejected so out of your depth, Charlie. Uh, on, oh, um, yes, please, in, please debate Hegelians. <laughs> This is amazing. <laughs> favor of what in some ways structurally is similar, but in some ways is the opposite because it's based on materialism. But here's what I do think when we talk like, about I'll, I'll be totally honest. I would be completely comfortable debating Ben Burgess on a topic like cancel culture, right? Where I wouldn't feel that I'm completely out of my depth, especially in a way in which there's just like, it's going to be preposterous for me to try to even like, you know, LARP around like I know what I'm talking about. But I would never in my life be like, okay, well, yeah, let's let's debate Hegel. This is gonna, this will end well for me. I only see this going good. Like this already is kind of the face. <laughs> Marx, because I think that there's an interesting thing that happens here. That when people talk about Marx, uh, they tend to say, well, any like dictator who existed in the 20th century, uh, squid uh, who claimed to be inspired by Marx, you know, people who were born decades after he died, that discredits everything that Marx said. But then when we're talking about a philosopher like John Locke, uh, who a lot of love John, uh, Locke. yeah, right. And then, uh, but then like John Locke, you know, the uh, the man both philosophically justified and was personally involved in the slave trade, given his role, you know, formulating the Constitution of South Carolina. Uh, colony, the man philosophically justified the genocidal dispossession of Native Americans. That's a misinterpretation. That, well, I think so, right? Because like his view is they don't really have property rights because uh, they're not using the land properly, and so they haven't mixed their labor with it in the right way to establish a right to it. Whereas, not only did Marx never not praise any dictatorships that were alive, you know, when he was alive, his model for what he thought a transition to socialism would look like was the Paris Commune, which was ultra-democratic. And the only head of state anywhere in the world who he liked enough to send a friendly telegram to was the democratically elected Abraham Lincoln, who he liked for anti-slavery reasons. So let, let, there's a lot of things I want to get into. So yeah. with the Paris Commune, yeah, sure. are you your favorable view of that? You do write for the Jacobin magazine, so yeah, I imagine. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that, I guess this is a question about human nature. Sure. Do you take a Rousseauian view of human nature? Do you think man is born free and remains the rest no, of his I, life I, in I, chains? I, or do you believe in tabula rasa? Like uh, blank no, that, slate, or what is your view of human nature? Okay, sure. Because I uh, think that's actually instructive sure. for so, how we so, proceed. So we covered this a little bit earlier, but I'm happy to go back into it. So I think that, um, so I think that as far as human nature goes, um, are people fundamentally kind and decent, cooperative? Are people fundamentally selfish and cruel? I think that the, you know, I think that to fully answer that, you need to get really deep into evolutionary psychology and a lot of other things. And the answer is incredibly murky. I think the only really honest thing you can say about it is what David Hume says in his essay on the afterlife when he says that it would be really hard to sort out who deserves to go to heaven and who goes to hell because most of us float somewhere between vice and virtue. But what I think is that almost everybody gets the relationship between the human nature issue and the capitalism and socialism issue exactly wrong. So uh, tell me why. That uh, because people, I, you touched on this earlier. Yeah, I, I did touch yeah, on this earlier. Okay, because if you have a Hobbesian view of human nature, you I'm, think that you should I'm, actually want big government. I'm happy to get into it. So I think that uh, well, I guess which is what Hobbes I believed. Well, I, guess. I certainly don't want big government in Hobbes' sense. This gets the, back to the this, Leviathan. This, this gets yeah. back to the distinction between the things that government can do to you, like break up families and deport people, and the things that government is under a legal obligation I have to, to do, stop you there. to do for you. You really think 
that government has the ability to restrain itself from saying, you know, this is what I can do, what we could do for you. You think government can have this dividing wait, 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 line wait, wait, between wait, wait, benevolence and malevolence? You don't think the government could restrain itself? I think you're all about limited government. Well, constitutionally, absolutely. Okay, so you, so you think but, the government only could, obey, could, obey, you, could obey restraints about what it's supposed to do? Only with the fierce limits of courts and not even establishing those departments in the first place. That the best way to limit government is to not create those departments or those means to do it. Well, I think that, not I think, have a spy agency domestically, for example. Like, sure. oh, we're only well, well, spy I, in a couple I, I, people. I, well, okay. So I think that might be the first thing. What I'm, I'm saying is, once you other, introduce other, that power, it will than, be abused. Other than your hatred of Jeff Bezos and Hunter Biden, I think the first thing we've agreed on tonight is that we shouldn't have domestic spy agencies. I totally but agree. I think, uh, but uh, but I think that if including you, the postal service, that, which that, spies on our citizens. That, well, I, th- I think that the uh, I don't think that's the uh, that's the primary effect of the postal service. I don't think that's You're because right. You're too busy of, losing the, my mail. of the of the uh, of the postal service. I think that uh, I think that the postal service give man so many like little smug smiles as if he's gotten points. He hasn't landed a single one this whole debate. We're an hour into it too. Then how cheaply you don't have to keep defending the postal service. How many? How many? Sorry, you don't have to do this. I think. Well, I don't think you should attack the postal service. I think that it's been a tremendous economic benefit to many millions of Americans. Right, okay. I, we don't but have to have a, stay but, bogged down. But on uh, it. but just, but but I do think. But on the philosophical yes, question, that's, that's where you want to go. I think that the more you're worried that one person given too much power over another is going to treat that other like a little kid might treat a fly trapped in a jar, the more what you should want in both politics and the economy is to have power be spread as evenly as possible. So earlier, and I want to, I want to make sure I'm addressing this because yes. I wouldn't want anybody to think I was avoiding the subject. Earlier you, was, you were saying that I was like hiding my radicalism by talking about the things that we could do immediately, which is I've got to say a little bit funny because I do spend a lot of time writing about the more radical long-term like stuff. Like banning private beaches uh, and letting in the entire country of Afghanistan. Yeah, I think that the, uh, well, first of all, I don't think the entire country of Afghanistan wants to come. I think a lot of the, a lot of the entire country of Afghanistan, unfortunately, supports the Taliban. I think refugees fleeing from the crisis that we created absolutely should come in. Um, but yeah, I do write all the time about the radical stuff. Those things are not uncontroversial. I don't think I'm afraid to talk about it. But uh, I think that when you talk about the really radical long-term goals, you know, you, you say a lot of times you like to just talk about the value of markets. And I do agree. Markets are good at some things. Good. We agree on that. Yeah. They have a, I think that if, that if what you're concerned with is coordinating production of consumer goods with what people want, I think markets are good at that. I think that there's a difference between markets uh, in consumer goods and the labor market. And I think the difference is that the, that the labor market, you know, people's need for a job and people's need to keep the job they have is vastly less elastic uh, than uh, than their need for a given consumer good because it's much harder for people to replace a job than to just start consuming one thing than another thing. And I think that the workplace is really a site of authoritarianism. And so, sure, do we need some markets? Absolutely. I think that there are domains in which uh, we've proven empirically, like I would argue healthcare, we were going back and forth on that earlier, that, uh, that taking those things out of the market could actually be much better. But are there domains you need markets in? Sure. I would say that for those domains that you need markets in, you can at least have those markets be worker-controlled firms. So I think that, like, if you look at Mondragon in Spain, uh, you employ you know eighty thousand people, extremely successful company, does lots of research and development stuff, and is worker-owned. People get to elect management. People have operated agreements that are like the equivalent of a union contract, but with no separate boss on the other side of the bargaining table. And so, if you say, should we have as a goal of government policy that? Private, the private sector be more like Mondragon or should it be more like Amazon or Walmart? I'd say it should be more than like a Mondragon. And one reason I think that is precisely that the more you worry that human nature is selfish and cruel, the less power you should want one person to have over another in the workplace or in society as a whole, which is why I want democracy in both cases. So first of all, we have 
I understand the argument of employers, employers, employees owning companies. We have that in America too. Publix super, uh, grocery chains is a great example in Florida. That could still happen in a market. But I guess this is, and you haven't taken a position on human nature, which I think is fine. Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think I've taken a position, to be clear. Right? It, it, there's some ambiguity in it. My, 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 my position is, is, you said, if you believe this, then my, you should My position want this. is that human nature is a mess, that there's a lot of truth to both pessimism and I, I think that's fair, and that's more... Accounts, but I also think that to the extent that you worry about the bad stuff, that gives you a reason to want to distribute power evenly. Right, so the best way to distribute power evenly, in the opinion of a conservative, mm. would be, first and foremost, to empower the family and to allow not just workers, but entrepreneurs to create new companies and allow workers to be able to have abundant choices in the workforce or in the workplace. The, the, the best competition, the best way to empower people's choice is competition, is not to say that we are now going to mandate that you need some sort of labor designation on your board. That's been the opposite of choice. I'll give you an example, which is that if you have a very specific skill and you work for Ford right now, Ford Motor Company, you have to be unionized to work for the United Auto Workers, right? It's mandated. Whereas like, well, if you had more competition, then maybe there might be non-labor there. So, and, and, so this, this is what always confuses me about that point, because I, I hear conservatives saying this all the time, that if there's a union contract in place that says that to be hired for this job, you have to be a member of the union, or really is usually you have to either be a member of the union or pay an agency fee, but whatever, we can just say be a member of the union, that if you have that, that this is an unfreedom, that workers are being forced to do something against their will. But what confuses me about that is that any condition for hiring, you could say, is forcing workers to do something against their will because obviously there's this wildly unequal bargaining power. Workers need the job way more than a company usually needs. I think needs. you're misrepresenting and, 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 and any business. Given, any I really given, do. Any given worker, uh, that, that's by and large, it's much easier to replace a worker than it is for a worker to yeah, replace, so repl replace a job. And given that, sure. I agree that anytime you make something, you can only have this job or you can only keep this job if you do X. That's a case where you're limiting people's freedom. But if you really go with that principle, then that should go for everything at a job. And I would say out of all the things that people are forced to do for certain jobs, the one that's least objectionable is you have to have this thing that actually protects, makes it harder to fire you, that uh, you know, that helps you keep more of the wealth you generate for the company in your pocket, that, uh, that gives you some sort of say because you get to vote in a union contract. That's way less objectionable than all the other stuff you're forced to do to have a job. Like what? Like, like what? Well, I mean, I think if you were like not show up drunk, like I mean, uh, no, not... I think I think we can agree that that one's reasonable. Okay. And, and, if, and if that was the uh, and if that was the extent of workplace authoritarianism in the United Wait, States, hold on. I, I really want to zero be, on this. I'd be much less concerned. I want to zero on this because concerned while, about it. But I, I want to zero on this because I want I'll agree that there's some externalities and some jerks and some dirtbags. Do you really believe? Let's say a majority. Sure. A majority of workers are being exploited by their bosses and that the owners of production. You really think that in America? What do you mean by exploited? You, you used the word. You said exploitation or workplace authoritarianism. Yeah, the word that, I, is, that is your term. The, the word I used was authoritarianism, not exploitation, but I'd be happy to talk about exploitation. But like, do you, do you, let, let's say, do you think that a majority of workers, to use your terms, are living under a workplace autocrat or form of such right now in America? Let's say a majority, yes. 50 plus one. Uh, yeah, much more than that. Uh, it's, so it's, you, that, that. So we have, we're going to have definitely sure, disagreement on sure. this. Sure, so, so they have a... Uh, so if you're saying, do the vast majority of people who work for a living in the United States, work at workplaces where... They're living under some they, sort of tyranny without them realizing it? So, okay, let's let's be clear about what we're talking about here. So they have a... Uh, that The vast majority of workers go to work in workplaces where they don't get to make any sort of managerial decisions. Those are made with and for them. And, so, and, yeah, but, and, and, but, but and that's why? Your, your way And let's be fair. Why is it? Because someone took a risk to start a company and those workers didn't. Because they decided to go into their savings, to go to a bank, to take out a line of credit, to take a risk to start something new. Do, do you think everybody and, has an equal ability to do that? Of course not. I mean, no. absolutely not. It just, okay, just quick sidebar. Let's look at the top employers in the United States right now, just so we know what we're talking about. They happen to be Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's company, Amazon.com, Target, United Parcel Service, The Home Depot, International Business Machines, a.k.a. IBM, 
Uh, Kroger, really? Did not see that coming. Uh, McDonald's, Walmart, and number one, the United States federal government. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the majority of these companies, I would say all of them, uh, do not allow for workplace democracy in, in any way, shape, or form. Does everyone have an equal ability to go dunk a basketball or to become a decathlete? Of course not. I mean, that's, that's, does everyone have an equal ability to become a college professor? And no single leftist has ever said that we believe the future, socialism or communism, as it were, is going to be that every person can become an NBA star. That is, that is true communism. Once everybody can become LeBron James, then yes, we have achieved communism. That is a dream. That's, that's definitely what every single socialist has been saying. Of course not. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, a, that's this, a silly but argument. But the, Are some this, people going to create better widgets and gizmos than somebody else? Of course not. But what people do have an equal ability to do is they have an equal ability to take the risk. There are plenty of people that couldn't split the atom well, no, you, that you work extra you hours. Do not, people that do go not have their the equal account. ability to take the risk. Hold on. Why, why is that? Why isn't that so the, 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 the reason people don't have millions of people start new businesses every year in our country. That's completely consistent with this. The reason that most that people don't all have an equal ability to take the risk is that what would be risked is very different depending on your initial financial situation. No, but um, there's plenty of people that... Okay, but, but there's a difference between plenty of people... Equal ability meaning this, meaning that... Charlie, who gets bank loans? Who gets startup seed money for companies, corporations? Where does that come from? Where does the majority of it come from? Do you think that every single person who wants to open their own business is just being held back by the fact that they decided not to do it? And then all these other people, these entrepreneurs, were like, well, I'm going to do it. I've, I've decided. Do you have the freedom to do that? Do you have the willingness to lever yourself up to go to the bank and say, you know what? I want to take out a second mortgage on my home and I'm going to go start some sort of shoe company on the side of the street. So, so, so but, I, but then, who has homes, Charlie? But, hold on. I, I, I find, okay. but then all of a sudden you're saying that, really that the five people okay. that are working in that cobbler store are being oppressed sure. by the guy that might have gone two years out paying himself just to be able to start that small business. Okay. And so every, here, here's where I'm starting to just like, so, 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 I, I, I so, wish you so, could so, give so, a little so, more appreciation. I, I, would, I would like to separate a couple of issues how capital here. was deployed. I would like to separate a couple of issues here. Because I, think a lot of <laughs> I wish you just respect capitalism. Why are you saying mean things? Why are you talking truth? Different things are being run together. First of all, on the subject of whether everybody has the equal ability to take entrepreneurial risk, I think that uh, it's really interesting that in your example, you said, oh, you can take out a second mortgage on your home. So what does that suggest? That you own a home and your finances are generally good enough that that would be, How's uh, your that credit would be score? approved. Uh, which obviously is a situation that tens of millions of Americans are not in. So I think we're now, coming to a good disagreement. Get, you know, but al this, yeah. also I would say that, uh, that when you talk about entrepreneurial risk, you say, well, it's not reasonable to say that workplaces where the people who are making decisions don't have any sort of democratic accountability to the overall workforce, that that's not authoritarian because... Uh, people, you know, in some cases, certainly not all cases, got in that position by taking entrepreneurial risk. I think that there are two different issues that are being conflated there, which is one, is it authoritarian, right? Which, and that's just a question of what's the structure of the firm. And the second no, is, they, is, they is, is the it job voluntarily? Because they, they weren't stormed out of the house and put a gun to their head and say, now you must go work for Home Depot. They showed up and filled out. But at the same time, we don't, we don't want anyone to have a welfare state. We don't want people to be able to like eat food, for example, or pay their rent without working. So... Uh, maybe there is some kind of obligation they have to fulfill. But a job application and wanted and hoped to get the job. So, so now, are there, so, so, are there so, examples so where notice, that is the case? Where there, not, yeah, not, not, I guess. Notice that everything that you just said applies to agreeing to uh, work at a company that's a closed shop. And so your contract specifies that you have to join the union. Nobody forced them at gunpoint to, you know, to, uh, to, to go apply for that job at a closed shop that they could, if they want to find an open shop where they don't have to join a union, you know, good luck to them, they could find it. No, I, I agree with that, that you can go work for a non-union shop, but you cannot be a public sector teacher in the state of California 
without being part of the National Education okay, Association. Okay, but, but you, just, you just said teachers. public. You, know, you just said public sector teacher. You could you could be a private sector teacher. So how is it? That these I agree, people, but why should the taxpayer subsidize does, a union project? Well, I think that what the uh, what the taxpayers are subsidizing is first of all a better quality. Of, uh, of, ed- of education. You think public schools are superior to private schools? I think that I think that Finland has some of the best schools. No, no, in America. You think public well, well, no, no, no. But I mean, like Finland and America aren't like such radically different societies. Of that course what's they gonna, are. What's, one what's is gonna, seven million what's, people. What's one gonna, is three hundred thirty-five okay, okay, million. Okay, okay, okay. Wait a second. Why? Why is it that what works at seven million in this case is not going to work with the th- the three hundred and some million? I, I could name a lot of examples. Why? Why? First of all, we have. Way, way more different cultures. We have a different state-based model. And let me just say this one thing. First of all, Sweden has full school choice, and one in five families in Sweden <laughs> so you already send their kids to something else. So we now, I'm talk, about now I'm talking about something completely different. But anyway, let's go back. But, 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 I think, but, but, I think but, we've but, digressed but, 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 but which country has better schools, Finland or Sweden? Finland does, and that's with no private schools. So and they also I, have very strict I, immigration. I, I, I think, but yeah, let's, I think, well, I don't think that's why, but I think that you have... But I think that... Um, that you are going to get a better quality of education when people are less precarious. They can really commit to it. They have a, uh, you know, you're, they're getting paid more, so you're going to attract better, uh, better applicants. And also, I think that the teachers count too. I think that teachers deserve to uh, to have those things, and I'm all in favor of it. But the larger point was if you're going to say that something isn't uh, something isn't unfree or if autocratic for, forcing yeah. you forcing you at gunpoint to do it, then that should apply just as much to your objections to contracts that make people join unions. So I, I want to go back. I'm going to talk about unions in circles um, where I think if you want to join a union, fine, go ahead. Public sector unions are not given that sort of choice. And by the way, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, war- warned us about public sector unions. He said all government employees should realize that the process of collective bargaining, as usually understood, cannot be transplanted into public service. He warned about... It's so transparent that he's just got a binder full of gotchas and like keep changing the page. Oh, yeah, okay, here's the next one. Did you know, Ben, apparently blank is true? the public sector union differentiation between private sector union differentiation. But I want to zero in on this because I think we have a really interesting point philosophically. Yeah. Do you think if someone takes a risk in America, they should be able to keep a reward? Uh, not entirely, no. I mean, you don't think entirely. I mean, like the only way you could think entirely is if you were an anarchist and you didn't think that we should But have what are the limitations on that then? I mean, again, I think that the, I think that the question that you want to ask, if, you, if the question is, is some transfer of wealth justified? Because I think that's the real question, right? Would our transfers of wealth justified? Uh, you know, and... Uh, it's, and I think that you need to go back to what are the principles that justify what you think a distribution of wealth in the first place should be. Now, you could think that whatever kind of distribution you get, letting the chips fall where they made a free market, that that's what's justified. I don't think that. I think that, uh, I think that the distribution of wealth that we have, and I, I think taxation and redistribution, even in the sort of market socialist you know, system that I was advocating earlier, I think you'd still need those things. But I think that uh, the distribution of wealth that's justified is the one that would emerge from a social contract that people would uh, that people would agree to under certain circumstances. So, uh, what, I guess it all comes down to numbers. I guess. Well, no, I mean, I mean, that's, so, this, this, I mean this, this, this isn't a claim about numbers. This is a claim about basic moral principles. But I, it, I, I, I think that the I think that the question is, if you were, you know, the best version of something like contract theory. If you were behind John Rawls's veil of ignorance, which I totally reject, sure. I, I, I mean, of course you totally reject it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to you, get into you, the Rawlsian theory you, you of justice. Couldn't, you couldn't yes. believe any of the things that you believed if you didn't reject it. But I think that. But I actually, but, I'm, I'm going to ask you about the veil of ignorance. But, but, in a but second, if you're but yeah. if you're asking about what I think, I don't think that there's some magic number that like, oh, you could tax up to this, you can't tax up to that. I think that if you want to know whether a tax system is just, a generally a system of how property works is just, you should ask if you knew that you had to live in the society, but you didn't know who you're going to be in the society, would you agree to it? And the same way 
that if you didn't know whether you're going to be black or white, you wouldn't agree to racial discrimination being part of the rules of your society. If you didn't know whether you're going to be born into a poor family or a rich one, if you didn't know whether you'd have the particular skills to help you climb up the educational or career ladders of professional managerial class, if you didn't know any of those things, how would you want the rules of society to work? Uh, and I, I, an and I think that. that's going to be the answer that's going to tell you when redistribution so of wealth is justified. I would want the rules of society to value action over favoritism, hard work over complacency, family creation over licentiousness, right? Liberty and the pursuit of virtue. Those things are right Family and wrong regardless of what they ignorance. If I would be born in a lower Breed. class or a higher class, those Breed things are objectively for me. good. So, and so, so to you, use Rawls' own so you you know, talk, thought experiment. So you talked about, uh, so you talked about hard work there. Uh, yes. So if you're, if, you, if you yeah. have a basic value to industriousness, if you have a basic objection to uh, people getting things that you don't work for, here are two things that you should be against. Okay. Inheritance and stock ownership. So let's talk about both of them. Stock ownership, you might be able to get me to agree. Inheritance, I think, is really cliche. Why do most people take big risks to create wealth? Which also goes to this question, how is wealth created? Yeah, why, why do the kids get to have it? Uh, wealth uh, wealth is created uh, by, you know, by workers. Those are the ones who create oh, wealth. No, 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 no. You know, the straw man that people usually trot out at this point in the argument is they say, oh, when you say workers are creating wealth, you're saying that there's a one-to-one how hard you work you know, to how much wealth is created. And of course, there are a million other factors that decide it. But everything that's being done, whether you're talking about ideas, which by the way, big companies, that's going to be workers in the R&D department, you know, uh, much more uh, than, uh, than, than CEOs in most of those cases, or whether you're talking about who is making the products, who is selling the products, those are the people, uh, those are the people who are creating it. And I would say, if you want to say that the only incentive that you can get, that you cannot have a thriving dynamic economy without people being able to leave millions of dollars uh, to, uh, to their descendants, then I would say that it's very confusing, first of all, that even within traditional capitalist companies, you have plenty of childless people uh, who are motivated to do that. No, I but, think that's totally true. But, but secondly, uh, that, uh, that you have cases like Mondragon, that you have very economically effective worker cooperatives. Nobody is creating some giant pile of wealth that they'll be able to pass on uh, to, uh, to, to their descendants, but people are still motivated to work and these companies can still be very successful. And look, you might be able to get me to agree on like 500 million, a billion. But again, it would, the reason I wouldn't agree with it, 500 though, million, not like yeah, 5 million. Like, like, the, the reason I don't agree with it is that where's it going to go find, go fund some spy agency so that they can go spy on Americans through well, some look, spy I mean, if, The if point you, is that like, if, every, if you want to say, no, but the we point, should abolish the spy no, agency. No, but the point is every time that there's this like, would you raise Or like, you should have rephrased it then like, okay, would you be fine if that's put into a trust that is then owned by all the citizens of America? And so that money is just redistributed into every single citizen's coffers. Would that be okay, Charlie Kirk? Facts to do this, the default answer is no, because we're funding every, like that money would then be transferred away from some private utility to something that I consider to be a government that is doing a lot of harm and very little good. And so, but I guess there's this question of wealth being created and we're kind of, okay, 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 we're, we're okay, going okay, at this okay, that's, that's, a real, that's a really interesting objection. But, but because, if, you, if you would say, hey, it goes to charity instead of the IRS, then I, I might be able to agree with that, which is what we're doing at this debate, by the way. Which as long that, as it's 500 you know, million. So great. I do have a question for you, actually, as a sure. sidebar. Why is it when you challenge me to debate, yeah. why didn't you say that all the proceeds would go to the IRS and to a private charity? What, well, uh, I think that... Um, Does private charity do a better job? No, I actually nope. don't think that. Uh, they, uh, so... Uh, first of all, the uh, the reason you know you the, uh, the debate it. hosting website, the way that that works uh, was you know was was already there. I have nothing against private charity. I am fine with with doing that. I obviously participated in doing yes. that in this case. Is it preferential? I, to I, government? I, I, I do not think that private charity can be a substitute for collective government action. I, I, I really think the empirical track record is very clear that you're not going to get private charity that's going to be as effective. So, for example, and we also need to talk about what we mean by effective here, because this is, this is a really crucial point. So there are, there are a few different questions. One, 
are you going to get like is there some amount of private charity that you could uh, that you could give for medical expenses that's going to get you to a point where our rate of mortality amenable to healthcare is as low as it is in Canada or the UK I don't think so. I think that the I think we've kind of run that experiment. Second point is part of what I mean by effective is giving people freedom and a dignified life in ways that they don't have if they're worried about quitting jobs they hate because they'll lose their health insurance or if they're doing things like starting GoFundMe's to buy their insulin, which means that they have to craft. Do you have enough of a tearjerker? Alley cat, it depends. Like I think as just a simple answer and I'm responding to the question, let's say you have 100 percent inheritance tax. All you would do is force parents to give away everything to their children before they die. Um, one, there's like a lot of other things you can do, right? For example, in Canada, if you don't live in the primary house in which you are selling, so say it's just a secondary or tertiary house or whatever, you will get a very uh, large taxation on that because it's not a primary occupancy dwelling. So you have to pay an additional 30% in taxes. So if it's like a million dollar house, you'll lose like $300,000 in the purchase that go directly uh, to the government to pay for programs or what have you. So you can, it, it shouldn't just be an, a be all end all thing. Like inheritance taxes are now going to be taxed at 50% or something like that uh, because yes there will be people who try to find loopholes who knows maybe daddy puts the whole thing into doge coins right before he dies and then you just want to like unlock that secret wallet right um so there has to be other forms of like you know taxation on uh, additional homes taxation on in, in other systems to be able to try and bridge that gap your story that you'll stand out from the other ten thousand gofundmes i think people are far freer it could be saying in the uk you can only give a certain amount of your taxes as a gift each year so it makes it hard to give away large amounts of money uh and go on tax yeah i'd like i don't even think in the u.s are you able to just suddenly give someone all your properties without the government having any like oversight of that i doubt that like i don't i don't think you could just be like all right to my children i am now just giving or bequeathing every single one of my homes because uh, i know i'm going to die in like 30 days or something like that like the the government would be all over that i think people have far more dignity if they just get these things as rights just by virtue of being part of a society yeah that's where we're going to totally disagree you can't if it's where a that trust yeah. private charity or a shell corporation not only oh, see, well, there's loopholes the we got to close hopefully be able to break them out of their economic economic circumstances i would argue it's much more efficient u.s is a maximum 20k um, I mean, in a variety of okay. different ways i mean i, I mean i think if you the 500 like, billion dollars americans give to charity every single year i would argue does a far better job of offering a social safety net than the multi-trillions of dollars that we spend we know on social not. welfare well, 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 wait a in a variety how, of different ways. How about the $500 billion we spend on charity, take the part of it that's spent, for example, on healthcare, and compare that uh, to comparable, you know, economically comparable countries where healthcare is provided as a right to everybody outside of the market. Which one does a better job? America, where you have to, you know, if you don't have health insurance, if you don't qualify, you know, for, uh, for Medicaid or Medicare, you have to beg on GoFundMe or countries like Canada, the UK, which it seems. I also like that Ben's not getting bogged down with the idea that like, you know, it would be a small detail to mention to Charlie, but at the end of the day, that $500 billion isn't necessarily directly going to $500 billion with the causes, right? I mean, like a lot of nonprofit organizations do have overheads, especially like a lot of them do have CEOs that take in very large payments because those CEOs have to be competitive with other companies. So you will have a CEO for Big Brother Canada, for example, that makes over six figures a year because again, they want to be able to hire competitive CEOs to other corporations. So it's not as if this company suddenly takes in X amount of dollars and gives out X amount of dollars. You have to look into how much each charity is actually donating to the causes that they say they're going to. Who's like by all the obvious metrics, who lives longer, who has a lower rate of infant mortality, who has a lower rate of mortality amenable to healthcare, all of those obvious metrics, it seems like those government healthcare programs do way and better. You won't, you won't hear me bragging on many aspects of the American healthcare system. Many of it is very cronyistic and corrupt. But to say we're not spending government money Cronies. on it, it's just not. Well, I, I, well, did I say that? No, we're but you're, you're implying it. it. I mean, we're, we're spending. I, I, I mean, I don't think I said or we implied. Have I, trillions I, I, and trillions of dollars I, I, we spend I, I, on government-run healthcare. Sure, I think I think it would actually be vastly more efficient if you look at how much how much is being spent for what results. 
I don't think there's any question that Canada and the UK are getting way more bang for their buck in terms of government spending on health care. So, so the UK has a total, so you would have the government take over hospitals? Yeah, ultimately, I think that would be better. So you, I, 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 I don't think... So where would medical I, innovation I, I, come from? Uh, well, medical innovation would come from exactly where it comes from right now, which, which is, is mostly the public sector. If you look at, if you look at pharmaceuticals, uh, this is, uh, and this is really good. I really like this argument because this is something people often trot out in defense of private health insurance. Well, you need that, so you have these incentives to develop pharmaceuticals. Uh, if you look at it, NMEs, not new, just pharmaceuticals, new, treatments, you know, right? new, new molecular entities, uh, you know, which are genuinely new drugs, not just you tweak it a little bit and you slap your corporate brand on it. Seventy-five uh, percent of those are developed already in government-funded labs. I think this idea that there's a lot of private innovation in there, such an uh, I think, detail. is at the very least wildly overstated. I think that you can absolutely have. Uh, healthcare, uh, healthcare innovation, without it being the case that within hospitals or when people you know, need to pay for treatment, you have this element of private profit, which I think has been a disaster in the healthcare system. Do you think? Do you think there's a reason why America has the highest quality healthcare, not for the most amount of people, but the highest quality healthcare? It's a why do you think that is? Well, I think that I think that, that is inarguable. If you can afford it, it is the best healthcare on the planet. Sure. I mean, if you uh, if if something is uh, that if you can skip to the head of the line by having enough money, then Absolutely. You, know, you can get world-class health care. But the question I'm interested in is not are well-off you know, people or really well-off people. No, it's a people. segue to my next so, question. Well, okay. But the question I'm interested in is not are they going to have better health care than the average person. And that's not how you should organize society. Like, hey, by the way, did you know, Ben Burgess, if you have the money, you can get the best possible health care in America? I was like, okay, cool. So you're saying that if you happen to be in the 0.01% of the American public, that everything's going to be totally fine for you? In Canada or the UK... What I'm interested in is, is the average person in the United States going to have a better experience with the healthcare system and have better healthcare outcomes than those other no, systems deliver? And that's just inarguable so, so the, the question, that they have better the outcomes question is and then better how, how do you get something that a few people have to have a lot of people have? More government intervention or market forces applied that allow things to be cheaper and faster delivered and better delivered? Market well, forces do a better job for that all the time, I, whether it be in technology I think, I think, or transportation or I think that there's a structural reason why market forces are not going to be as effective in healthcare as they are going to be in many other areas. And that structural reason is not some like special radical Marxist thing that I think. That structural reason is something that you'll find in your wildly pro-capitalist neoclassical Econ 101 textbook, which is that supply and demand are going to do a much better job of shaping things in the direction of consumer preferences for things that are pretty elastic. You drive past one gas station, you see, ah, oh, that looks a little bit too expensive. You drive a few blocks more, you get to another gas station. Uh, those market forces are going to do a much better job of delivering for the consumer there than in cases like health insurance, which is wildly inelastic. For one thing, if you need heart surgery, you will pay any amount that is in your power to get it for the same reason that if we didn't have, I'm sorry, public fire services, uh, it was just like in ancient Rome where like Crassus would like go around with uh, slaves with buckets of water and offer to buy people's homes, you know, for, you know, for his prior product service spread out. Yeah, people are going to sell for whatever price you're going to pay in those circumstances. People are going to pay whatever you're demanded to get heart surgery. And even when it comes to less dramatic uses of the health insurance system, like just, let's say all you need from the healthcare system is once every 90 days, you need your doctor to sign off on some prescription you've been on for 10 years. It's still a giant stressful pain to switch providers that, you know, you have to find yeah, somebody. I'm not defending so, every so, well, detail well, of the American system. So, well, well, but, the, the point isn't about the details. The point is that this is a structural reason that our demand for healthcare is way less elastic I, than our I, I demand for other, other, other consumer goods. The, the American goods, healthcare which system means, which means that market forces is are hardly be less market, though. We don't have price transparency. We have an oligarchy of the hospitals. We don't have health savings accounts in most. In okay, most I don't know if he even knows what the market is. What are you talking about? Yeah, that's one of the problems with capitalism guiding this principle, right? If you have hospitals in which they can dictate whatever price they want for whatever uh, service 
insurers they have, that is a huge problem, especially because these hospitals will charge more sometimes in the same state. You can go to a different hospital in the US, you'll have to pay more for the exact same kind of operation because again, they're dictating what is going to turn them the most profit. And like Ben stated, if you need it to live, you're going to pay whatever fee someone is offering and or go bankrupt trying. Most states, we don't allow health insurance across state lines. Now, while I agree that there is this, that at times there can be externalities of where the profit motive is not a perfect fit where it's like, oh, I want to go buy a T-shirt. Like, okay, yeah, I have leukemia. Like, that's not the same thing. I get that. Where the charts and the graphs can't explain all of that. And that generally, the best fit line Clean of market principles can help for the vast majority of things that are not in that 10% category of life-saving treatments. Because, and you know this, the vast majority of people going to the doctor are not like, I have a gunshot wound, I have leukemia, no, absolutely or not. cancer. That's, it, it's the, that's, it, that's what I just said. No, though. I know. But market forces in those cases, you could agree, could be very, very instructive and very helpful. Well, I th- I th- empowering I th- the consumer and price transparency so, so and bringing down prices. So, so I think that here are the things that we know. That... As a matter of fact, market forces uh, are right now. Quite 185. Thank you so much. But right now, you know, they are creating lousy outcomes in the American we, healthcare we system. We hardly have market forces so, so, okay, in most healthcare. But th- like most but hospitals are nonprofit, is, like government run agencies. This, this is what it sounds like to me. Like when you say that, that they have, all I can think is this sounds like nothing so much as some ultra leftists saying, well, look, sure, Soviet economic planning had a lot of problems, but that's because it wasn't communist enough. They still had no, money. I, I, still I'm had arguing this. that. Because if we look at the systems that actually exist, then the United States has one of the most marketized healthcare systems in the entire world. And certainly relative to developed rich countries, we have some of the worst outcomes. And if you want to say, well, if we made it even marketized, more marketized, we would actually have better outcomes than all of the systems in certain aspects that are, that are, that are, that are socialized. Example. I think that's a leap. Let, let me give you a great that. example. So you want to empower regular, regular people, consumers. Would you agree that there should be a federal law to mandate hospitals publicly publish their prices, price transparency? Yeah, sure. I'm all for that. Okay, that's a market. That's a market fix. We want people to have the information because what they have right now is they're driving down the street. They don't even see the gas prices. They don't even know what price anything is. And so that's just an example of how hospitals and being kind of this oligopoly of nonprofit profit mixture, which is incredibly corrupt, that they are hiding behind this idea to not empower the patients. What I'm fix. saying, and I think there's a middle ground like here. Transparency. We want to empower patients to know, like, wait a second, you're going to charge me $45 for a Tylenol? Like, you that's dumb. Yeah, I, I agree. The price, price transparency, transparency is better, the same thing. even better. And by the way, that's not every conservative agrees with me. Some are like, they can do whatever they want. I think that's silly. Okay, well, that's that's like, that's, uh, that's that's good. Put that put that alongside the progress of the Bezos. On Hunter Biden, the, the Jeff Bezos. Bezos, and price transparency, so, right? So I don't so, want to spend so, so, all but, of our time but, but, on okay, okay, but yes, okay, but let me just say one there's last, so much more I want to get sure, to. Sure, but, yeah. but let me say one last thing about that. What would be even better than having transparency on what you're getting, what, what you're paying for things that you badly need, which doesn't have to be as dramatic as a gunshot wound. Insulin is something that people badly need. Psychiatric medication is often something that people badly need, and if they and if they get off it, you know, without proper medical, you know, circumstances, that's going to be a disaster for them. That will be even better than price price transparency is not treating those things as commodities. And if we look at the systems in the world today, the ones that seem to do a lot better, at, at the very least, yeah, and go I'm, much further. I'm not going to get it, I'm not going to get into waiting lines in Canada or any of that because. Some of that stuff is very. Really happy to get into some it. of that is very much disputed, and quite honestly, I'm not prepared to go into that as much. So I just kind of want to. Okay, okay. I, I would say. I, I do want to. The, the, I'll the, the, let you have the, one comment on that sure, because I'm not. Sure, sure. What, one comment. And that, I'll allow people to do their own research on Canadian waiting lines. But yes. Sure. Uh, I think that if you if you want to talk about uh, Canadian waiting healthcare line, rationing because it's not unlimited, sure. therefore you have to prioritize. Sure. Gets it, right. No healthcare system is unlimited. Is, is perfect. Uh, but the question is always: if there's a limit, what is the principle that you use to decide? That's interesting. Who, what would you who, say that who, is? Who gets the it? youngest? And I would say that absolutely the worst way to do it is for it to be made not by doctors, 
uh, you know, making decisions about, okay, what do we think is going to pay off realistically, you know, like, like is, is how long can we keep this person alive versus, you know, like any of those things, the worst way to do it is to ration it by money, which is what we do. So what I think about Canadian waiting lines is there is some truth to it. There are some things. Thank you for you, saying that. You do, not, not everyone says that. Do, so I agree. That you do have longer wait times I, for. I appreciate you. I don't think it's dramatic. But there are some things that you have longer waiting times for, but I think one, uh, that part of the reason you have longer waiting times is that more people are in line. We don't exclude people from the line because they can't afford it. And I think as a matter of basic human rights, that's good not to exclude people from the line. And two- That is a really good way to shorten lines. Just don't let the pores in. That's, that's the Charlie Kirk method. If the reason we're worried about it is because we think that people will die waiting, I think we can look at all those statistics comparatively between the United States and Canada. And I know a lot of people want to say that all of that's just lifestyle stuff. Uh, but I grew up right by the Canadian border in Michigan. All the Canadians I know. In the love, Upper Peninsula? Uh, no, in uh, in the Lower Peninsula, but I actually had to drive south to get to the nearest Canadian border, Detroit-Windsor. Oh, wow. Uh, okay, so, you were near the Canadian so, border. Uh, and all the Canadians I know love beer and hockey and Tim Hortons donuts. I don't think that, these, that the reason that they have these better healthcare outcomes is that they're that much healthier than Americans. Uh, and certainly, I think the infant mortality differences, the lifestyle of infants is very similar everywhere. They just kind of lie there. Uh, and you could say there are certain factors, paired, you know, parent behaviors that create differences there. But I think even there, like way more Brits smoke than Americans. Uh, the rate of drinking is higher. You know, I, that is definitely true. I think that the, uh, and those are the things that are most immediately going to impact that. And then especially, I think the one you're going to have the hardest time explaining is mortality amenable to healthcare. Uh, because but, yeah, that, let me just make my position clear. Yeah. Why I think some of your critiques are actually very valid and helpful, where you totally lose me is government takeover of hospitals. And because, let me ask you. Okay, I, okay can we but, at least do government takeover of insurance? Well, I was going to say, do you understand that the system in Canada doesn't work that way? It's not that there's a government takeover of hospitals. Hospitals can still be privately owned. It's that the provinces get funding from the federal government to be able to pay for the services that the hospitals are rendering to the public. Well, let's just, let's do hospitals because that sure. really is the question, right? Sure. So let me just ask you a question because uh, I didn't want to spend this much time on it, but now you've got me interested. Do you think the VA works well? So I, I think that, uh, I think that I would, I would say two things about that. Uh, so the first is that if you actually look at surveys of people, and sometimes defenders of private health insurance love to do that because they say, hey, look at these surveys where most people say they're happy with their health insurance. I think it's very unclear what that means, you know, or do you think, does that mean that you're happier with it than you would be with not having to pay for it and actually saving money like most people would with Medicare for All, uh, even according to the Mercatus Institute? But like the people who are most likely to say that they're happy with it are seniors on Medicare and veterans and active duty military personnel who are the ones who are living under the British system. But are there cases where people have to wait way too long for uh, certainly like psychiatric care? Do you see what I'm getting? I'm saying no, 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 for, 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 the VA is a mess in for, a lot of services. But, but I, I think that, uh, and I think that unfortunately there's a cycle sometimes where conservatives are successful in getting funding for things cut or certainly not increased the way it should be. And then they use the results of that to undermine it. Uh, but I think one big difference, if you accept for the sake of argument, that despite those surveys that I just gave, that overall it's way worse, then the question is, what's the difference between the NHS in Britain and the VA, and I think that the biggest difference, why the NHS has all these great outcomes, certainly compared to the US healthcare system, uh, I think the difference is that the NHS is for everybody. Only a small minority of Americans are veterans, so what goes on in the VA is not really something that's on most people's radar most of the time. Let me ask you another question. So there's a lot less political incentive to care about y it. Usually, typically, in urban areas, are the county-run hospitals the best? I'm sure they're not. They have a, because uh, uh, I think that uh, oftentimes, they're severely underfunded. Uh, that they, uh, it's it's certainly you get what I'm getting at here. Though. So I, I, I get what you're getting at. But <laughs> I keep like, saying that you get what I'm getting at here. It's like yeah, um, and you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you why you're wrong. And now you can pivot to the next point that you got in that binder there. But, 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 I, but, I, but, I, but I think the question is why 
let's accept that, right? Like, I, I'm certainly not going to pretend like I have a bunch of stats that are memorized. Yeah, and even I'm, let's I'm, just use I'm, Atlanta. I'm, 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 the the, the County, Emory Hospital is way better than I'm, I'm, I'm County. And I'm, I can say for personal experience, it's just sure. the Emory Hospital is so, far superior to so, this county. But here's what I think is the more relevant point of comparison. Not when it's a municipality, uh, which is often, you know, cash starved in general, and it's going to be, I think, actually much less efficient than doing it but federally. They do receive a lot of federal money. But, 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 but they have, but why is it then that you think that in Britain, or in sub-Scandinavian countries, where most hospitals are publicly owned, their healthcare outcomes are so much better. That's, that's a very fair question. I have my own personal opinions of it. Not every healthcare outcome is better. We have a higher cancer survivability rate for certain sort of treatments. We have a higher <laughs> okay. quality of care for certain people. There's some specific. people like in the healthcare field. It could be because of many different under, underlying Poisoning health conditions well. of how obese America is, where we are more obese than these other comparable countries, also our diet, nutrition. But it's it's be difficult to kind of pinpoint a cause. If your argument is it's because that they're run, the government is running it, I reject the argument simply and totally because I know the government runs almost nothing efficiently and correctly. Okay. But I, mean, I guess that's that, 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 that's so the crux. Right there, that's that's the crux, right? So if your argument is something that is based in factual evidence and you can demonstrate that through statistics, numbers, all that kind of stuff, uh, I reject it because I don't have to listen to this. So the that's, argument that, that you're that, saying that, seems, that, that, that you're trying to sell me that in a multivariate analysis, you put all those other things aside. That it's oh, it's because some guys. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't put all those things aside. We just went through a detailed, no, I know, but a, that, a, a detailed argument about why this is a more plausible explanation. That's fine to be not convinced by that not, argument. Yeah. But I think I think describing it as oh, I'm just dismissing everything else rather than giving you reasons why those explanations make a lot less sense. I mean, what is the biggest difference between the U.S. and Canada? What's the biggest difference between the United States and the United Kingdom? It's not that we're much healthier. As you say, a lot of things that are relevant here, like drinking, uh, are actually- are, are We actually, are a little bit more obese. Are actually, so, yeah, a little bit more, but if, you, uh, but if you look at it, it's I don't think it's dramatic enough to make this the, uh, the big distinction. And also, I think the healthcare outcomes, where you think they, um, you know, I mean, look, 36% obesity is worse than 30% obesity, but I don't think that's going to explain everything we're that, talking that's about That's a big here. deal. They, sure. I mean, I, I am all in favor. And, uh, and I will say we, this. We, we can talk about what you'll policies agree with address this. You, that. If you want to think, if I want to go to the final thing sure. that we'll agree on, with this, the biggest difference sure. is, I think, the preying pharmaceutical companies in our country. Well, like, that, let, is, that is certainly one. But let, let's put let's put the hospital thing aside and delivery of care and all that stuff. Well, I, well, I, I, was, I, I was I was just going to say that. I think pharmaceutical companies have, and so I'm just going to say this. Sure. Because I think it actually is the best argument to say that market principles. And I would have made this argument if I were you, but you you didn't. That's okay. Well, I mean, but, I, I, but I, I you kind of did. did. I, like, I I'll did, just say I, that, I, like, if you're Pfizer, yeah. the money is in the middle of keeping someone not healed, but keeping back as an annuity to keep buying your drug, right? And this comes to someone who can't stand the major pharmaceutical companies that tries to be more homeopathic and kind of solutions in all this where not conservatives, conservatives don't talk about that enough. If there was a difference, mm. I would say that AstraZeneca, I don't even know if AstraZeneca is an American company, but Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer and BioNTech, which is an originally it's Israeli company. List, yeah. yeah, but those are the vaccine manufacturers. Yeah. Um, which, 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 by the way, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about with the pharmaceutical companies because most of that research was government funded. Which might have had questionable outcomes. We'll see. So um, I guess we, we're not going to get into that. That's too much fun for right now. <laughs> okay. Let me ask you another question. Well, 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 well the, the, point, the point I was trying to make, just, just for the record, is the outcomes where you say that the U.S. is better. And not every metric, but it's fair. I'm not defending the U.S. Sure, healthcare but, system. But the, but the, but the, I'm not their defensive no, team. I, right. I understand you're not defending because we can go to every, Singapore. We can go to other places that have. Else. I mean, Singapore is much less free market than the U.S. system. Decentral. Well, they're more economically free. I mean, again, I mean, sing, I'm not, I'm not a defense lawyer for the American healthcare system. Singapore's healthcare but, system is like Obamacare. And but trying but. to convince the American public, what you're trying to do is say, hey, let's nationalize the hospitals, nationalize the private industry, private insurance, which is what you eventually want to get to do, is obviously done in a rival with me, and I think a majority of Americans for good reason. Sure, but what I was going to say was those metrics where you say that we do better are things that I think a big part of the reason that uh, we're going to do better on those is those aren't about overall outcomes for everybody. Uh, they're about specific kinds of services that not everybody's going to get in the first place. And that goes back to what we were saying earlier, that sure, if you can afford it, 
Absolutely. So yeah, and, and the but, final but, thing I'll say, because I want to get on these other topics, sure. is we know how to get things cheaper and better, and that's usually market forces with some externalities being handled. So I'll give you one example. We might agree on Hunter Biden, Bezos, price transparency, and I don't think pharmaceutical companies should be allowed to advertise. I think it's the weirdest thing ever. They're running. Ask your doctor about this. Like, if you need it, then your doctor should tell you about it. You shouldn't be propagandized by the sure, pharmaceutical yeah, if companies. If you're asking your doctor, right. I mean, this is going to be very short. But when he says market forces are the best and quickest way to get things cheaper, uh, it's usually monopolization. When single companies get to absorb other corporations and then they can drive down the price by doing mass purchasing, bulk purchasing, as well as the manufacture of items in countries where labor is way cheaper, such as China. That's how uh, consumer goods become a lot cheaper. Fourth, this is right for you. Fourth that's thing. A, that's a drug dealer, not a doctor. But I agree. But, uh, but that's, I, think that, I, I totally I, agree. I, but, but because I, it hurts the family. All right. So <laughs> okay. I want to get to this next thing because we can keep right. on going in circles sure. about all this, um, which is, okay, this is this could go forever and we'll, we'll wrap it up eventually, I promise. Do you believe in absolute truth? Uh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Just, just, I'm just interested. I, I, I mean, do, do you, let me, let me make sure I understand what you're asking. Right? Yes. So um, when you say absolute truth, uh, do you just mean that whether things in general about any subject are true or false. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at, and I hate to use like the cliche sure. word, is would you consider yourself a postmodernist? That truth no. is relative? No, absolutely okay. not. Do you, so that's, that's good. Do you think that postmodernism and that kind of movement mm -hmm. is harmful or helpful to the American left? I think it's, I think it's harmful. I, I don't that's think, interesting. I, I don't think, Elaborate I don't, that. I don't think we should believe in alternative facts any more than, uh, than anybody else should. Uh, I, think that, I, think that what's, I think that what's I true, true is, uh, I, think that, I think that what's true, generally speaking, it depends a little bit, you know, what we're talking about, and I'm not saying the only reason I'm saying like that Newtonian is Newtonian physics, like force just, equals mass sure, time acceleration. Sure. Right? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, technically, Newtonian physics is a good enough approximation for like mid-sized dry goods. The real stuff is like quantum physics, and relativistic. Of course, physics, but you understand but, you what know, I'm saying. But I understand what you're saying, and I agree, right? Absolutely. I think that I think that uh, I think the truth is uh, is objective. I think if you want to get into an argument about who in practice who has political power is actually denied that, you know, more than uh, more than others. Uh, yeah, then, I don't think there'll then, actually be much fruit in that discussion. Then, then, like, then, then, said, we could, then we could get into he that. He said he said. But, but, if, you're, but if, yeah. if your question is whether truth is uh, truth is objective, then I think I think it is. Uh, I did. If, if, if I could slip one in. Uh, sure. You it, can ask me questions. It, too. it is it is a little bit uh, it's a little bit off the track of most of what we've been talking about. But uh, but but I have been wondering about this. Right. Cause, sure. Because I I have seen. Um, you know, I, I've seen some of your previous, you know, previous debates, and something's come up at a couple yes. of them. Uh, that's that's a it's not a politics question at all, at least directly. Is it more metaphysics? A, yeah. Okay, it's, there it's you a, go. Uh, it's more metaphysical question. Is I've seen you make this this claim that you know you'll say things like, "Well, there's no social contract; our rights come from God." Yes. Uh, so, so first thing is, can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? Yeah, just as the founders did, as they said in the Declaration, the laws of nature and nature's God, where. Whether you believe it's an actual being, I guess this is where he like feels would, the most comfortable, or kind of more of a deistic type God that you have rights and something gave it to you, and that the social contract that we have recognizes a transcendent order. So, so if something gave it to you, I assume that what you mean by something gave it to you, I would believe in omniscient, omnipotent being, but I'm not, I'm not proselytizing you to well, believe. No, no, that, I'm, right? I'm not. I don't think you are. I mean, I, I was the one who brought it up. I'm sure. Just curious okay. No. You know that. A, uh, so, uh, so if uh, you know, because when you say that something gave it to you. You can read that at least two different ways. So one of them is, which, and I assume this is this is not what you think, but like you know, one of them is that like literally in a cause and effect way, we have certain legal rights because of like the intervention of of God. But of course, it's clearly not the case that God is like stopping China from putting dissidents in jail. I assume what you mean is that uh, we morally have a right to those things because God gave it to you. That's correct, but if you're asking, do I believe that in a God that can intervene supernaturally? Well, sure, sure. I do. Sure, you can, but I mean, like, and as, has, as, as a, but, but I'm but happy the, to get into that. Sure, fair, no, fair enough, right? <laughs> I don't like, think like, like, be... and has. Like, I, I don't think that's actually relevant to the question. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, 
trust me, whatever else I am, I'm a huge philosophy nerd. I'm always happy to talk about that. Uh, but, and I have a question about Christopher Hitchens sure, for you. Sure, awesome. I, I know you wrote a book on it. I did. Uh, just finished a couple weeks ago. But I don't, I'd like to, thank you. Uh, but uh, if you say that God is the moral, you know, is the reason why morally we should have these rights. The unmoved movement, that, that, yes. That, that I don't understand how that's going to get around like the, the Euthyphro problem. Like if you say, okay, so Euthyphro, there's this dialogue written by Plato where Socrates yes. is arguing with this ancient Greek holy man named Euthyphro, and they're talking about the definition of holiness. And uh, it's going to take just a second, but I promise I'm going to get through this quickly and we'll, we'll get to the point. You know, they have a, so they're arguing about the definition of holiness, and uh, Euthyphro says the holy is that which the gods love, and Socrates asks him this simple question. Do the gods love it because it is holy, or is it holy because the yes. gods love it? So translate into what we're talking about here, the question would be, is it morally just that you know these rights be recognized because that's what God wants, or does God want it because it would be morally unjust to deny them? Because if you say, Both. okay, well, I th that's a really interesting answer. Never heard that one before. I want to I get into it. But just to, just to finish up with what the problem mm -hmm. is, if you say that God um, wants you to have those those rights because it would be morally unjust to deny it to you. Yes, and that, 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 that suggests that it's morally unjust for some reason other than God wanting it, and that the God part, um, at least on the moral question, is, is going to be sort of beside the point, that they have a, that like whatever the reason is why it would be, God thinks it would be unjust is a reason that's going to be just as available to the atheist or the agnostic. Whereas if you say it's morally unjust because God doesn't want it, and God doesn't have some reason why it would be morally unjust, then it's just like lucky for us, I guess, that God wants us to have free speech and freedom of religion, equal rights for women, because he could just as easily want us to organize a society like the Taliban did. Right. So a lot to unpack there. I would say both because through divine revelation and through reason, especially through many of the writings of the mm -hmm. early church fathers, you know, we believe in a metaphysical God that not just gave us the law and this interpretation of natural rights because he believes there's a certain way we should live. By the way, this topic in conversation was the first time we put down the binder because I guess it's like, oh, I don't need notes for this one. This is Charlie's house. Right. But also because of divine revelation, we, release, we realize what is morally just and unjust, right? So believing in the Christian God or the Judeo-Christian God, you would reject what the Taliban is doing well, for a variety of different reasons, but, 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 right? So, so but, I, I understand how you can say that through divine revelation, you can figure out what God thinks. And is, the tradition is, of the West, sure, right? You know, and going off to talk to Plato, course. Aristotle, Aquinas, sure. Augustine. Well, I mean, this is, you know, we can we're, go to we're, the, we're talking about the Plato, Plato's objection. To yeah, I'm happy to go through Aristotle's but, 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 ethics but, but, and metaphysics with you too. Sure, that sounds fun. So I think that I understand how you say through divine revelation, we find out what God thinks is just or yes. unjust, but that's a slightly different question from what makes it just or I just or want to make sure I'm understanding your question. Just can you sure. clarify it a little bit? So, uh, so the question is, you know, the answer that you, the question you answer with both is, does God want us to have these rights because it'd be unjust if we didn't have them? Yes. Or would it be unjust if we didn't, or is the only reason it would be unjust if we didn't have them because God doesn't want us to have them? The answer is both. And the answer is in self-evident, is that you can find it both in the word of God and through self-evident exploration of the natural world. But, the, but, that's, but, those, are, but those are answers not to the question of how you find out what God wants. Yes. But that's a little bit different from saying, why does God want that thing? Oh, okay, good. God wants us these things because he wants us to live fruitful and multiply, as he says in the scriptures. Live God does not want us to live breathe. oppressively. He doesn't want us to, always comes down to, to it. fail or to, in my own biblical theological mm -hmm. interpretation, which you can feel free to mock and dismiss. But the, my... I mean, tr tr trust me, I'm not going to mock it. I, I, we I, had a whole fun that, little thing. That's, 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 that's I, I my role. Okay, no, 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 that's, that's, that's where the react Andy comes in, all right? Ben, you're, you're just doing God's work right now. I'm, I'm, I'm just here to be the fool. Or Christian socialists like Cordell West or Dr. Yes. Martin Luther well, King. Definitely not going to find me as one of those. Or, or, or but, to pick a third example of a progressive Christian, just at random, pick one out of my the hat, my wife Jennifer. Uh, they have a tremendous respect for all of these you. people. But, but uh, God, God but, but, wants but, us to live freely. So, so, okay. So if God wants us to live fruitfully, to, to flourish. To be fruitful and multiply. Sure. Right? Okay. So, so occupy so, till I come. Be salt and light throughout every corner of the earth. Okay. So would it still 
if the reason that God wants us to be fruitful, if the reason that God wants us to live you know, flourishing lives, whatever, yes. is because it's objectively good to live flourishing lives, this is, so it would still be, if hypothetically, it turned out somehow, right, there was some magic way of checking this, right, that, uh, that there wasn't a God, it would still be the case that it was objectively morally good. That's to correct, yes. Okay. Yeah, so, so God's law in our interpretation of natural rights is true regardless if you recognize it's granted by God or not. So I'll give you an example, the Decalogue, right, the Ten Commandments mm-hmm. or the Ten Statements that were given to Moses. If you follow those 10 things as an atheist or Christopher Hitchens fan, you're going to live a good life. Not lying, not stealing, not murdering, honoring your parents, you're not committing adultery. Those are things that are built into the natural law. That's an easy 10 examples to give. Now, but also those things are true if you recognize they're given to by God, of which I believe. So those are both independently true. So, because you say, like, you said two things here. I'm not sure how long we want to spend on this, but just, just I mean, I'm enjoying you know, it. But you're sure. But you're saying two hope things. You're enjoying this. No, I, I am enjoying this. I just also realize that this is a little self-indulgent. That I, I was really curious about this thing. That's a little off-topic. I, I hope it's clarifying and not confusing me. So. <laughs> okay. Well, here's the part that I do still, unfortunately, find a little okay. bit confusing. So you're saying two things about this that I don't see how they fit together. One of them is that it would be objectively morally good for us to live flourishing lives, whether God existed or not, and then the other is that God grants us these rights in the sense that you know, the reason why that God somehow is the reason why morally these are good, these are things that we should have a right yes. to. Yes, both of those things. So if there's someone right now in some country, island country, yeah. and they independently come to the conclusion in the natural law that they should marry and have children, not murder and not kill, regardless of them becoming in contact with the word of God or where that came from, they're going to live well, flourishing sh- lives. I, I, so that, that's, what they, that's what we mean by the natural there's so many like cultures that didn't follow the Judeo-Christian Western version of what is to be one man, one woman, uh, one wife, and then uh, breed on. That's <laughs> that that would be replicated so many times. There's there's countless examples. Natural law sure, no, that someone in Papua New Guinea or sure, in Paris I, 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 will equally succeed if they do these. Sure, things. I, I understand, but maybe I'm not answering the question. I'm so, not trying to dodge it. Sure, but, no, I, I, so so, but the, the but like what you're talking about seems like. Uh, forgive me if this is a slightly pretentious way to put it, but like it seems like what you're talking about isn't really metaphysics. In other words, what makes something true, right? What you're talking about is really epistemology, how we find out that it's true. It's, so, well, so, so, I'm happy to go into the metaphysics so, of it so, too. Sure, sure. But the question is just like, I understand that if God's granting us these rights is what makes it morally good for us to have these rights, then it can still be morally good for people to have these rights even if they don't know about that, right? I understand that part. Okay, but, have good. Any, so, but, there's, but that's a little bit of a different question from if it objectively weren't true, that were not true. If it were objectively not true that, that, God exists. that God exists, would it still be the case that these would be morally good? God, I understand the question. Um, I reject the premise. Well, I mean, I understand. Because, because like, it's, it's like I asking, you think that's not the it's, case. A, it's asking in like a hypothetical world if like there is no unmoved mover and like some, cre- you know, some creator. Sure. Um, so I guess what you're saying is what I value as the natural law, if there was no natural law giver, would the natural law still be true? Um, to be consistent, I guess. Okay. Yes. Well, well, but I just, I reject the premise because you're asking me. Later, I don't understand the question, and I won't respond to it. There it is. <laughs> Need to believe something. something. Sure. I, so to answer your question, I guess, would the natural law be true yeah. if God did not write the natural yeah. law? Yeah. Okay. So But I think that the natural law is true because it's epistem- epistem- epistemologically correct, teleologically correct in our purpose and our driven, theologically correct and spiritually correct. Okay, but that still seems like we've traveled some distance from saying that God gave us these rights in because, the sense that the reason it's morally good that we have these rights is that God wants us to have but, them. And, and I believe that is, that is true. Okay. Because our existence is breathed into by a creator. Sure, but I think you can, you can think three things are all true. One is that um, the reason we exist is because of God. Right? Yes. And 
Uh, you can even think that the reason maybe there are certain natural facts about the way that people are such that certain things are good for us and help us live flourishing lives and that the reason for those natural facts is that God created it that way. Yes. You can believe those two things while also believing that what makes it morally good that we do these things and live flourishing lives is both. Yeah, it, I said that. Well, okay, but I don't understand it's how because, it can be both. It's both because God commanded it and because God created it and God ordained it and also that it's good for human existence through the moral construct that we all so, 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 so if God... They're both simultaneously true. So, I mean, maybe this is another thing where I'm asking you to entertain something you don't want to entertain, sure. but like... If God was dead? No, if God had commanded something different, would that thing therefore be good? So that, that's, a, that's, that's a premise and a presupposition that... Well, I, mean, I understand you don't it's think... Like, it's like saying... So this, actually, the Bible deals with this, right? Sure, okay. So the Bible deals with this in the, in the story of Abraham and Isaac. Or is Isaac and Jacob when he brings up the son to sacrifice? Abraham, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac yeah. yeah. Abraham and Isaac, where God commanded Abraham to sacrifice his Max, child. Yeah, it's very similar to Max. Yeah, exactly. I want to make sure I was precise. When... It, God actually never yeah. commanded him to do that. It was a test yeah. of his faith, right? At the very moment he delivered sure. a replacement sacrifice at the very okay, last so, moment. So, so that, this is a perfect example. That, that's a question of obedience to God. Do you do something that is against the moral law if God commands you to do it? So, so you think that if, hypothetically, uh, God had wanted him to go through with it, that the right thing to do would be to go through with it? Yeah, if you believe in an omniscient, omnipotent, unmoved mover, but this text doesn't show that. Yes, I mean, the answer, even for an atheist, would be a yes, if you believe there was a God. I don't, I don't, I don't think that follows. I think that, the, I think that you could be, if there was an omniscient and omnipotent but morally bad reason uh, being that created the universe, then I would have a self... I, th- I think that's a fair I, thing to I, say. I, w- I would have a self-interested yeah, reason I, to go along with it the same way that if I was living under Stalin, I'd have a self-interested reason to go along with what Stalin wanted, but that wouldn't mean I would have a moral right, reason Right, but, but under the Christian text and the Bible, there is not a commandment that is against what we would consider as moral in the Western well, tradition. I and you would probably totally disagree. Let I me ask you a question about Christopher Hitchens. Sure, let's okay, because we have five minutes left. I am delighted to do five it's minutes. It's okay to rape Help under certain sure. conditions? Um, give the best argument. Because yeah. what, what are your metaphors? Give your daughter on to them yes. okay. so that they may um, know you hope her? You're wrong. Do I hope I'm wrong? Uh, Men who have their balls crushed aren't allowed in the kingdom of heaven? Do you hope there's a God? I can go on? I certainly don't hope there's a God who's going to send me to hell for me as an atheist. That wouldn't be a good outcome. Do you want eternal life? Do I... Uh, depends what kind of eternal life. Like it's a, eternal bliss. Eternal bliss. If that were seeing on, your loved ones. Sure, like, sure. If that were on offer, I would take it. I I respect that that answer because not every atheist answers that way. Some yeah. atheists say I, no. I, 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 there, there they want to be right more than what is good. Sure. They, they, they would, there are a lot of things about that like standard theologically orthodox Christians believe is God about God. I would not be happy to be true, but that one I would definitely be okay. Happy an to acceptance of a savior that could give you eternal life. So. Um, f- the, okay. fine, the fine-tuning argument. I don't, I don't think that's exactly what I said, but it's probably not worth doing. The fine-tuning argument. Fine-tuning, which yeah. Christopher Hitchens said is the best argument sure. for those people that believe yeah, in yeah. a creator. The fine-tuning argument is that we live in a planet that's perfectly positioned. Mm-hmm. I, you, you would do better than I could. How do you personally wrestle with and unpack the fine-tuning argument? Sure. Do you ever have doubts that there is a God? The fine-tuning argument, for those who haven't gone through their uh, edgy atheist phase, because every single atheist to, like text or literature, whether it's Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris, talks about this, is that, of course, that there are these, uh, uh, what is it, five or six constants under the laws of physics that are perfectly situated, and that if they did not exist in the way they do, that life itself would not be able to arise in our planet. And I think the anthropological stance or viewpoint from that perspective is that you are just looking at the creation and basically the conditions for the creation of that universe from the outside side as in the universe only exists because it's the way it is and that's the one we live in without understanding that there are an infinite amount of possibilities for different ways in which universes life time space expansion could have arisen we're simply existing within the one that has these technical constants and we're able to interpret and and see them that's that's basically it um honestly i kind of wish that i could say yes because it makes me sound more uh 
you know, reasonable, more reasonable. Uh, it sounds dogmatic if I say no, but honestly, I think no is the honest answer. Uh, I think that so, so, so why the fine tuning argument doesn't move me very much because it, it didn't move Hitchens, but it sure it piqued well, his curiosity. I, I mean, I might even go along with the comparative claim that it might be better than the other arguments, but they have a uh, but the reason that I find the fine tuning argument unconvincing is that I don't think we can move backwards from it would be really improbable, like given a certain setup, this outcome would be really improbable. This outcome happened, therefore that setup is wrong. So just a small example that I think makes vivid why I don't find that plausible. Um, if you, know, you shuffle a deck of 52 cards and you deal out you know, the, uh, the ace of spades, it's clearly a bad argument to say, well, uh, if the person was cheating. Yeah, the deck has more than 52 cards, though. They were doing, sure. Because oh, the probability, the fine but, but that doesn't. Is. But, that doesn't, but I, I think the point of principle is that the same reason <laughs> has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, Charlie. Say, but... <laughs> well, um, there's only a 1 in 52 chance that a fair shuffle would have gotten me this, and this happened, therefore it wasn't a fair shuffle, is that you could run that argument for any card. That it would be much more likely that if you had the dealer was cheating to give you the three of hearts, you get the three of so, hearts. That if yeah, it was random, the hole was made for me. How big you make the deck, Volpes gets the it. same point is going to apply that if it's one out of, you know, 500 trillion or whatever, uh, that the uh, chance of this, well, sure, it's the fact that this outcome is the one that happens, you could say would be more likely if there was a being who wanted it to happen. But you could also say the same thing about all, all but one of the other 500 trillion. So, so let me ask you a question, like yeah. the minute, 10 sure, seconds sure, we sure. have remaining, sure. which is not that. Teleological argument, what's the purpose of life? What's, uh, so, okay, so I think that that I definitely cannot do in, in 10 seconds, but if I could have like an extra 45 or so, Fine. I could. Oh, I could do it in one second. The answer is soup. Take a run at it. What is the purpose? <laughs> what is the telos? What is so, the place so, you're aiming so, for? So I think the teleological argument for the existence of God is a slightly different thing. No, from, I'm just saying, what is your teleology? From, from What's what the, the purpose okay. of being? Okay, all right. Because if you said teleological yeah, argument, we could get into why I don't think that works. But I think that the uh, I think that uh, I think that the purpose of being, if you mean the, the moral purpose, you know, what makes it like morally good uh, to uh, to live uh, to live life uh, in a certain way. Uh, we could certainly talk about what counts as personal virtue. We could certainly talk about what counts as moral justice. Whoa. I think a good. Hey, Reverend Ravens just raised a very good point. Odin said he'd save us from frost giants, and there are no frost giants around. Therefore, Odin is real. That's like, we have to get away from this kind of like, you know, uh, single deity discussion and, and return to the glory days of having multiple deities. I, I, I'm completely ready for this. That's logic. Driving That's sound. Is one where you can pursue uh, what, you know, uh, what you regard as a good and fulfilling life. Which I gotta say, Pantheon party, uh, fuck yeah. To do, uh, if, uh, if all hail Odin, the kind of economic supports that make you not stay in jobs you hate, etc. I cannot resist throwing that in. That, that's okay. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, Maybe too. we could do it again. I'd and it was fun to explore ideas everywhere from metaphysics to ethics to post post office, post office adoration. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Defense. Yes, strong, and strong. We agreed strong on Hunter Biden, post Jeff Bezos, price transparency, and pharmaceutical commercials. Besides that, it's a bunch of really good disagreements, but we have clarity in that agreement, which I hope we have more of. Thank you. Anything you want to plug in closing? Your new book on Christopher Hitchens? Yeah, new book on Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, what he got right, how he went wrong, and why it still matters should be out in December. Uh, the show is called GTAA. Give them an argument. And um, I would, I guess the last thing I would, I would just say is that um, I, as much as I do disagree with you about I guess you just gave a list of exceptions. Metaphysics, that's, that's the point the, of existence, sure, sure. you know, they eternity. Have a, uh, all, of, all of those things, I really do appreciate the fact that you're okay. willing to do this. A lot of conservatives are not. Hey, it was fun. 
Uh, a round of easy claps uh, for Professor Ben Burgess, because I've seen now Charlie Kirk debate uh, the Dolphin comedian, Vosh, a handful of other people uh, who obviously had very opposing views. I think, in my personal opinion, that was the most successful Charlie Kirk debate I've ever seen. Obviously, the last 10 minutes kind of just derailed because Charlie Kirk wanted to enter his own territory where he feels very comfortable, which is talking about metaphysics, uh, epistemology, stuff like that. But for the most part, for, for I'd say the, the majority of this, it was a whole bunch of conservative talk points he already had laid out in a binder ready to go one by one you know he's gonna pull out of this did you know that there's no minimum wage in denmark checkmate socialist like things like that and every single one of them ben was very quick on the draw not to get a gotcha not to get a like well this is why your head's expanding but to just be like hey uh, the, if you say that part, you should be completely true and good faith and add that they have incredibly strong unions and union bodies and that it's responsible for them actually having a higher average wage than we have in the United States. So that's not even a gotcha. It's just simply you misrepresenting the facts. Time and time again, it was just like over and over and over. So I would say if I was an outsider, a normie, actually, I, I don't know. There's no way to, to have like a normie barometer on this one. But I would say this was probably a lot more effective at making people see that Ben sounded reasonable. Well, actually, you know what? We can check out the comments. Maybe I'm completely wrong on this high high upvote that's good i give dr bridges credit for showing up and having a civil dialogue agreed with very little of what he said but i'm grateful for him challenging my worldview these kind of talks are crucial i'm thinking of shrinking mass who feels like things could work out if we just discuss our differences i guess we don't have a real construct anymore things are naturally moving for yeah, virtuous good money in the hands of government is better spent than a private charity this guy is delusional <laughs> mr bridges has done a fantastic job of making specific reasonable arguments well done both of you charlie ask him why he's so concerned about immigrants before the consideration of citizens charlie these are great keep it up can't wait to see a lot more of these then hush some charlie's an excellent excellent things well what a waste the time mr bridges quite literally on the edge of a seat the whole time yes uh jesus these type of professors love the sound of their own voice this guy's another example of a person who lives in a theoretical world in his head and has never created anything he just stayed in school long enough wow it was the damn immigrants the whole times i tells ya and contribute to the discourse nice there we have it so you've just been listening to an episode of The Surf Times, and if you enjoy it and want to see The Surf Times, you can go to wearesurfs.com or watch the live shows at thesurfs.tv. And also everywhere social media is sold, basically thesurfs.tv, you'll find us there, twitter.com slash thesurfstv, for example. It would also help us out tremendously if you could leave a good review of this podcast if you enjoyed it, either on, I don't know, iTunes or wherever you're podcasting. Apparently it does help, and yeah, we hope to see you soon. To our gods, Xander Corvus and Peyton L. Just, we will build a ladder to heaven to deliver you the daily news. To our monarch, Tom Spiker, we are your most humble of clownish jesters. To our lords, Trevor R. and Alexander Thaler, you have our undying fealty. To our knights of the round table, Nate, that one guy, Hagbird Celine, Matthew Scarborough, Stellar Vision, Ariana McCarthy, Daniel Sutton, Ants are still running the world. Coulter Smith, Tom Grow, Val 9000, Jenna Tal, Quiet185, Anna Loves Riley, Riley and Anna, Omni, Poodlehawk, The Tim Caucus, Multimondi, Trevor Janice, Lemmy 101, Anthropophojack, Saren 42, Chronic to Hemp Hog, Catherine, Radical Maniac, Ramon Acosta, Incosin, Violent Orchard, Sophie Baby, Political Puppy, Andreas Chiringuito, Zach Christensen, Josh Mickelson, Todd Buckingham, and Todd Lajeunesse. We shall meet you in the tavern, and we raise a drink, and we salute you. 